here it is. The most listened to radio show on the planet. Even the other stations are tuned in too. This is Marcus Lashak, the Roller Coaster Bureau Chief at WGN TV Studios in Chicago. You are listening to the Coaster Challenge Podcast. Hi, this is Jake Toko with Rocky Mountain Construction, and you're listening to the Coaster Challenge Podcast. Hi, this is Adam Sandy with Zamperla, and you're listening to the Coaster Challenge Podcast. Hey, this is Jeff Tucker from Knott's Berry Farm, and you're listening to the Coaster Challenge Podcast. Do you accept the Coaster Challenge? Yes, I accept the Coaster Challenge. Do you accept the Coaster Challenge? Coaster Challenge Podcast is here. It's time to face your fears. Get that theme park therapy and lend us both your Coaster ears. Challenge Podcast is here. Your fear can disappear. We know that theme park therapy can dry up all your tears. Do you accept the Coaster Challenge? Yes, I accept the Coaster Challenge. Do you accept the Coaster Challenge? We accept because you know we're not average. You're listening to the Coaster Challenge Podcast. A journey where people become fearful to fearless, all from riding roller coasters. So please secure your hats and glasses and keep your hands and arms inside the podcast. It's time to accept the Coaster Challenge with your host, Andrew Locke. This is Andrew, one of the executive producers of the Coaster Challenge podcast. I've got a guest here with me today, sitting down with a coaster enthusiast. His name is Ryan Levy. Welcome to the podcast, Ryan. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, so Ryan, uh, why don't you tell myself and, and our listeners about yourself? Uh, you know, perhaps where you're from, um, you, what being enthusiastic, you know, being enthusiast means to you, and uh, just introduce yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So, as Andrew said, my name is Ryan. Uh, I'm 23. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. I'm born and raised, still live here. Um, currently finishing my last few weeks in undergrad for mechanical engineering. So that's where my enthusi interest comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see some more stuff about myself. I, I mean, I love to tinker with anything, especially mechanical objects. So that's really what got me into uh, being an enthusiast was the mechanical side of roller coasters in general. Um, uh, let's see. You know, it, it's it's really that. It's just love for engineering. Coasters was a byproduct, and and that's that's where I went with it. But. Um, yeah, no, that makes sense, Ryan. You know, thanks for explaining that. And I can very much relate. I and mean, you and I've talked quite a bit, uh, you know, over Instagram, which is how we met and how you came to be here on the podcast when I made the suggestion that you uh, be a good guest. And especially for the second half of the interview, the things we're going to talk about, we've not ever talked to any guests previously about this. And we'll get to that later, of course, in the second half. But, uh, you know, I'm an optical engineer. I, I have an engineering background myself. Um, I don't have the side hobby that you have. I might want to get into it because I'm just, I'm so fascinated by it. Uh, and again, we'll get to that later. But uh, yeah, I, like you, uh, theme parks and just the kinetics of, of rides, of, of coasters, especially, but even flat rides, you're not even being on it, just walk around a fair or when I was growing up, Six Flags, uh, Great Adventure. I grew up in New Jersey. You know, when I was a little kid, I was afraid to go on a lot of the rides or not even tall enough, but my parents would take me there just watching the rides. I was fascinated. You know, I love trains, planes, cars, sports cars is another one of my hobbies. And uh, a lot of it is related to I love how things work and I love, you know, technology and things like that. So it, it totally makes sense that, you know, like me, that's that kind of stuff brought you into, you know, being involved with coasters. So very cool. Yeah, so absolutely. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you and I will have some things to, we can relate to with each other, um, you know, as the time goes by here in the interview. So, all right. So, um, 
Next few questions I'm going to ask you are um, what I like to coin terms. And here in season two, I've coined the term, the uh, fear journey. And so we'll kick that off with this first question. It, it's not necessarily the main part of, of the fear journey. That, that's the kind of the next couple of questions. But, uh, but it kind of, it's a good place to start because it is literally where things started. So my next question for you is, what was the first coaster that you rode? Yeah, so that might be a, a bit of a complicated answer because I, I think there might be a kiddie coaster I rode when I was really young that my parents put me on. Sure. Um, What's the, the one you the first coaster? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the first coaster I made the conscious decision to get on would be the uh, Georgia Cyclone at Six Flags Over Georgia. Not a great one to start with, but <laughs> that, that would be my first. Yeah, so interesting. That's an interesting first coaster because I know more about that coaster than I should because I've actually never ridden it. Um, the first time uh, I, I went to Six Flags Over Georgia, uh, you know, I, gosh, it was 2019. It was September of 2019, right at the end. And of course, at that point, that coaster was already Twisted Cyclone. Right. Uh, so, and that, I'd never been to Georgia before that. So, so the reason why I know about that coaster, about the Cyclone, is I know that is a, uh, that was a DIN, DIN creation, right? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. So I know a little bit about the history of that coaster because I wound up. So, so Twisted Cyclone, which I rode in 2019, was my, it became my 300th coaster. And I'm an ACE member. I'm, are you an ACE member, by the way, Ryan? I don't believe so. Okay. No. No, that's not a requirement for the podcast. No worries. <laughs> but I am an ACE member. With ACE, you know, they have a magazine. And one of the things they feature in each of their issues is, you know, people's milestones, you know, 300th coaster, 400th coaster, whatever it may be, 1,000th coaster. Um, and so I, I've sent a few of those milestones in with a sign of me on the train. Uh, and um, one of them was my 300th, which was on, Cyc on Twisted Cyclone. Sent that in. And um, Tim Baldwin, who's the editor of the um, Roller Coaster Magazine for Ace and, and other things, he emailed me and said, hey, would you like to write a review of this ride? Because it had just brand new. It just opened a few months before. And so I did. And I wound up being this like several page article for Ace's uh, Roller Coaster Magazine. I'd done a couple reviews like this. That was the first. It was really fun. I like writing. And so as part of that, I kind of talked about RMC and a little bit about the origins of RMC uh, and and but also talked about how, you know, rides like the Georgia Cyclone and Cyclone out in, uh, in Magic Mountain, which was a similar coaster. Um, you know, all these kind of not so great wooden coasters that were built in like the, you know, 80s and 90s, how they were just destined to become RMCs and, and you know, you know, why, how, be, how, be, how better they became when they were turned into hybrids by RMC. So, right. um, yeah. So anyway, so I know a little more about that coaster, even though I never <laughs> yeah. wrote it. So um, anyways, so that was the first one you were writing. How old were you? Uh, let's see, sixth grade. So probably... I think 12 years old somewhere 11 or 12 okay okay that makes yeah. sense so I, I had a delayed start I, yeah I had a hard time getting on coasters to start with so a little bit of a okay. later start but okay yeah so you had a, you had a hard time getting on coasters do you want to could you elaborate on that or yeah for sure um coasters yeah I mean, it's kind of the fear around getting on them you know it's like conquering the hill um, right of course, you know that you can do it. You know that you're going to be fine. But just getting in and harnessing yourself in is a huge hurdle. And right. it took me till about 11 or 12 before I finally was just like, you know, I, 
just do it. Just hop on. Everyone has fun. You know, it's going to be fun. Let's just do it. And I finally got on it. But um, I think it was delayed just because like I was mentioning before, uh, you know, like you, I enjoyed just walking around at the parks, sightseeing, looking at all the, you know, the kinetic energy that takes place at these parks and the mechanics that go on around you. And so I was, I was satisfied. I wasn't bored while I was there. Um, right. So it wasn't like I was missing out on some fun. I was having fun in my own way. Uh, but then I, I decided, you know what, today's the day I'm going to do it. And it opened up a whole new, whole new realm of fun that you can have at these parks. So, right, right. Well, you know, it's interesting. You bring up an interesting topic inadvertently there. So we, we don't specifically ask people in our interviews, you know, how old they were um, when they wrote their first coaster, although it comes up a lot. You know, sometimes we'll ask them or sometimes they themselves will, will tell them, will, will, will tell us in our audience about it. And but a lot of cases, like, for example, me, my first coaster that I remember, and it might have been younger, but probably not, was I was four years old, rode Space Mountain here in Orlando, where I live. Well, I live now. I didn't live then. <laughs> um, and that's a very common answer. A lot of other guests, that's, that's been their first coaster just because of the age and so forth and how many people come to Disney World. Uh, mm -hmm. But, and a lot of our other guests that we've had in the first season here in the second season, their first coaster was, you know, three, four, five years old. And for them, you know, I don't remember when I was four, I remember, I still have memories of the station loading area for Space Mountain. And I remember briefly being terrified by the ride, but I don't remember going through like what you just talked about because I was four years old, you know, the rationale, should I go on this or not? Am I ready for this or not? You know, when you're three, four, five years old, your parents are basically telling you what to do and they're putting you on things. And, you know, a lot of times you're, you don't even know to be afraid. But you right. being someone who started a bit later, um, you had that kind of rationale and that decision making and, and you know, you know the, having the fear that would kick in because you're old enough to understand and comprehend what's going on here and what you're about to do. So, you know, in that way, you, you know, you had a lot more thinking to do than, say, a four, four year old like I did. So that's kind of interesting. So, yeah, for so. Sure. Yeah, and, and that actually transitions well into the next set of questions, which really is, is the big part of the fear journey. Um, now, whether it be the Georgia Cyclone or a coaster you've ridden since then. Uh, now, by the way, you got a late start to two coasters and now you're 26, right? Uh, 23. 23. Okay, so it's been a little more than 10 years. So how many coasters have you ridden total? Uh, I think my oh, total, I don't know the total count. My coaster count is somewhere around like 125, somewhere in that range. Total okay. coasters, I don't, uh, yeah, I don't know what the number is for total number of rides, but. Oh, okay. So in other words, so are you saying that you've ridden 125 unique coasters, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Unique okay. That's all I meant by your count. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's pretty good considering you've got a late start and you're still in your early 20s. Uh, plus, you've been in college, and that takes up a lot of time, et cetera. So that's pretty good. Okay, so of your 125 or so coasters that you've ridden on, was it Georgia Cyclone or whatever it's been since then, what would you say is the coaster that has scared you the most before getting on it? Yeah, so I feel like I need to elaborate a little bit. The, sure. the ride, I've never been on a ride that has scared me mid-ride or post-ride. It's always pre-ride, right? Getting oh, oh, yeah, that's normal. That's normal. Making that decision, right? So the ride that's done that the most for me was Top Thrill Dragster. Ah, um, okay. That is just, it is just such a daunting ride when you're sitting in the, the station loading platform waiting to be dispatched out and you're looking up at that 420-foot tall tower. Right. Uh, there's just no fear 
that's like that. Um, so that's definitely the one that sent that made it the hardest for me to decide to get on. But right, right, no, and that totally makes sense. And that is one of the most commonly named coasters uh, that you know where you know the question of what's coaster you scared to the most. That sometimes King of Ka, uh, sometimes X two. Um, those are some of the most common uh, here in the U.S. Certainly, um, so you're in good company there. I'll definitely tell you that much. Love that. In fact, helpful dragster might be the number one, but we we don't keep track of who's named what. So, and Neil, yeah. you are originally from Georgia, or did you live elsewhere in your life? By the way, no, I was I was born in Atlanta, and I've uh, lived lived here ever since. So, interesting because yeah, you don't have you don't have a southern accent at all. Yeah, you could like no, I don't. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like funny. my parents Jersey. are what what's that? I was gonna say my parents are both from the south too, so I don't really know why I don't have an accent, but I don't oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I was just saying I'm from New Jersey and I really don't have for the most part a New Jersey accent, which I'm thankful for. But <laughs> so yeah, anyways, I was just curious if you lived anywhere else. So okay, very good. All right. So topical dragster. So was it the height? Was it the acceleration or the speed? What was it that scared you the most about it? Uh, I'd say twofold. Uh, first, the launch, followed by the height. Uh, okay, you know, you can't acceleration get the, and then the height. Right. Got yeah, it. you can't Got get it. to the top until you've gone through the launch. And then once you're up there, you realize, oh, shoot, I'm at 420 feet. That's kind of alarming. And it's just a whole, you know, like a series of events that freak me out about it. Right, um, right. But it, it, yeah. Okay, all right. Well, we'll come back to, to uh, Top of Dragster here in a moment, but I'm just curious. So, Ryan, have you been on King to Cop? Uh, yeah, I've, I've ridden King Dakar as well, uh, roughly four or so years after I wrote Top Throw Jackster. Got it. Okay. And so how was the intimidation factor before getting on King Dakar for the first time? How did that compare to the before the first time you got on Top Throw Dragster? Yes. Yeah, so the intimidation factor was far less than what it was for Top Throw Dragster the first time I wrote it, uh, but not nearly, or there was a little bit of a fear that still arose within me, uh, you know, just from the sheer size of the ride. but nothing compared to the first time I wrote Top Thrill. That makes sense. That makes sense, given that you identified Top Thrill Dragster as being the one that scared you the most. So, okay, mm -hmm. very good. Okay, well, let's go back to Top Thrill Dragster. So talk to me about, you know, what you were thinking. Now, Top Thrill Dragster is one of those coasters. It's not a Disney Universal coaster. You know, the queue's outside. You're right next to the ride there. You're hearing it, which is very loud. You're seeing it. So what was going through your mind as you're, you say, going through the queue and heading up to the station? It, I basically was going through my head was the same thing that was going through my head the first time I rode Cyclone, uh, which was, I kept telling myself that you've done most of the elements of this ride already. You've done them before. They're just slightly bigger or slightly faster. So right. if you've done it before, you can do it now. Um, and, you know, like I told myself, the Cyclone, you know, you're going to have fun. Everyone loves this ride. It's the most popular there is for a reason um you just gotta you just gotta do it you just gotta wait out that that queue line so you can get on and lock yourself in and then was my key i just said i just gotta hop on and i gotta lock myself in and i'll be good to go um but that that was the big thing going through my head was just reassurance that i've done everything that i'm gonna experience maybe not as big or fast but that i've done it before and i can do it again so that's really interesting that you were doing that because a lot of people when they're feeling pretty strong fear and let's face it you know, a big coaster, a new coaster, you know, something that's faster, taller, you know, you know, even enthusiasts, but especially for, you know, general public or people that haven't been on a lot of coasters, even if they eventually become an enthusiast, you know, the, the fear is pretty strong. 
And because of how strong it is, it makes it very difficult to have rational thinking, like what you're talking about there. And in fact, one of our previous guests, and a friend of our friend of the show, a friend of David and mine's personally, and uh, his name is Chuck. Uh, when we interviewed him early on in our first season, he talked about fear being a failure of the imagination, where you automatically, where your mind automatically goes to the worst possible outcome or outcomes, doesn't think about what you were telling yourself while online there for Top Baxter that, you know, people ride this, they have fun, you know, it's safe, it's a good time, you know, it's, it's similar to things I've written before. So was that being, was that thinking pretty successful for you? Uh, yeah, it's pretty, it was pretty successful and it's been successful in other aspects of my life as well. So I, I think that's why I usually revert to that, that line of thinking when I get stressed or anxious about something that I'm about to conquer. Um, it's Are, just the fact that I've, Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, no, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead and finish. Well, I was just going to say, it's just th that I revert to it due to the large success that I had with that when I was starting out riding coasters. Interesting. Would you say, and again, you know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, some similarities might come up between you and I here talking. Would you say that you're driven a lot by logic? Uh, very much so. Um, and I, I think that's where my mechanical engineering side comes in. You know, I've always been fascinated with that, that line of work and, you know, you, you don't become successful with engineering per se without logical, you know, step-by-step -step planned out thinking, uh, whether that be through troubleshooting or other methods, you really got to think logically, break down the problem into smaller problems and just tackle them one by one. And so that's, that's what I, that's how I approached it. It was just, you know, you, you got like, what are the fears for instance, on top of the there's the launch, there's being at the top of the hill and then there's the spiral down right those are the three big things that i think get people and so you know what are the three big things well i've never done a launch before but it's just going really fast you know i've gone fast in a plane maybe it wasn't as windy but you know you've gone faster um i've been at this point i'd already ridden millennium four so you know i was only shy by 110 feet um, and then the drop is just a drop i've already done that so i just broke it down into the, the little problems the subset problems that there were and then walked myself through Yep. Yep. I definitely can, can understand that and relate to kind of breaking it into compartmentalizing it and, you know, problem solving, like you said, it's a huge part of engineering, something that I use all the time, uh, not my current role, um, where I've moved kind of more into sales, which I very much enjoy, but, um, my most recent role that I had or job that I had before I got into sales was I was a field service engineer where I was not, you know, in my home office where all my coworkers were that they could help me. Um, I was literally in the field of customer site, you know, repairing instruments and where customers were breathing down my neck to get things back up and, you know, a lot of stress potentially. And, you know, I, even through all the stress, I would usually, it wasn't always successful. Most of the time I would apply the scientific method, you know, one change at a time, don't start changing a bunch of things because then you don't know what would actually fix the problem or made it better. But yeah, just trying to remain controlled, logic-based thinking, taking notes, being methodical. So your thinking is very impressively methodical, even in the face of fear. And that's really impressive. And I don't think we've had a guest previously that, that really has this ability that you have. Um, I, I have to say myself, when I've got a severe anxiety, it's hard for me to have that type of thinking. So it's very impressive. And I think you're very fortunate that you can, you can have that for yourself. Yeah, very much so. I'm very thankful that I'm able to think like that. Um, you know, it does take a lot of effort to get to that point. Not, and that's not to say it. there aren't times that, you know, I get so anxious about something that I, I lose that. I mean, everyone's human. We all go through different ways of dealing with things. And every once in a while, I won't 
compartmentalize like that and I'll, I'll I'll be very anxious. But if it's something that I can see the problem and lay it out in my mind, then I will, or I'll do my best to do that uh, before I start freaking out about it. Yeah, no, that's very impressive. That's a, you're very lucky. Absolutely. So you were kind of giving yourself a pep talk in your head as you're online for Topful Dragster and obviously you got on it. How did you feel once you got off of Topful Dragster? Oh, I felt on top of the world. I mean, I don't think there's a feeling better than getting off of a ride that was intimidating you. Um, and especially one like Top Throw Tracks or um, you, you really feel like you can conquer anything after you conquer a fear like that. You know, the fear seems like the end all be all. Uh, you get almost like this tunnel vision, right? Like everything in the world around you ceases to exist because you're focusing on this one thing. And then you get off of it and that weights off your shoulders and your vision opens back up and you're like, wow, look at all these other things around me now that I can do because uh, I was able to get myself on that. So that's kind of the, the emotions that I walked through getting off of Top Throw. Yeah, there's sort of this, uh, and it's the same thing we've heard from, uh, same type of thing we've heard from a lot of other guests. There's sort of this triplicate of things that happens that are all positive when you conquer a fear like that. One, you feel great mentally because you you were able to, you know, like, hey, I did conquer this fear. I didn't wimp out. I didn't chicken out, you know, walk of shame, whatever you want to call it. Um, two, there's the enjoyment of the coaster itself, you know, the extreme acceleration, the G-forces from that, the heights, you know, going up, going down, you know, that really steep drop, drop and for a very long drop on top of the dragster and, and, you know, just the intensity of it. It's a short ride, but it's very intense. And just the enjoyment of that, that you got just got to have. And then the third thing is the world that opens up to you by conquering a fear that, you know, for example, you could look at that as like, well, now I can go on other coasters that go really fast. I can go on other coasters that are tall, you know, King Ka, like you did a few years later, you know, only being slightly taller, slightly faster um, as a uh, nice benefit of the coaster wars, mail in 2000s. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, but you, yeah, you, ha you have this whole world opening up to you versus the opposite is if you had chicken down, you would not feel good about yourself because you failed yourself. Two, you know, you would have not enjoyed that coaster. And three, you would still be afraid of, you know, very fast coasters and tall coasters, et cetera. And so there's that the opposite, obviously. So yeah, so you've got that triplicate of great positive things. And yeah, that's awesome. You felt good afterwards. So taking that a step further, um, how would you say did riding Topful Dragster successfully conquering your fears? Uh, how did that impact your life? Um, I'd say the fear or the conquering of fear associated with riding coasters in general has impacted my way in a really positive way, um, mainly due to, you know, what we were just discussing with compartmentalizing things to deal with fear. Um, I gained a lot of really valuable strategies that can be applied to all facets of life. Um, but I think the biggest thing was like this analogy that I created in my head about coasters, which is that it, it could be applied to life. And that is that, you know, you've got your station, which is your current your current point in life you're you're comfortable there's no change you're living a normal life and then something comes and uproots that that scares you whether it be change a change whether it be moving a new job or giving a presentation in class if you're younger you know whatever that might be that's the ride that's the, the lift hill that's the drop that's your your helix your turnaround whatever it might be that's the ride but then at the end of the day you're always going to return safely back to the station to your comfortable way of life doing what you were doing before, before the fear hit. So, you know, I, I kind of gathered that analogy after conquering more and more coasters 
and realize that it can be really applied to anything in life. And that is that no matter how scary or how bad something gets in your life, you can always reason, you know, that you're going to come back to a stable point where you're going to feel better. You're, that fear is going to be behind you once you conquer it and then you're done and you're just back on your stable life. So, you know, looking at coasters in that way has really helped me, you know, you just compare it to a fear that you have in the, in, in anything. And, uh, you know, you realize, okay, I'm coming back. I'm good. We'll make it back to where I am, where I'm comfortable. And I think that's, that's the biggest thing that I, I walked away from this with. That's really powerful. And that's a great analogy you use with comparing a coaster to life like that. Um, would you say that, you know, we, we phrased the question, the coaster that scared you the most, but would you say that Topsail Dragster is the, the, so far in your life, 23 years, the overall thing, so to speak, that scared you the most? Was that like your most scary experience? Um, yes and no. I think, you know, there's different things in life that scare you in different ways. Right. Um, so I, I've had things like in, in school, you know, if I've had big, big projects that have been due, like I had my senior design project recently, that was, that was a very intimidating challenge, but it was in its own way. So if you're looking at the way that coasters, the fear that coasters instill in you, those aspects of fear of my life, for sure, Top Throw Jackster was the biggest one. Got it. Because because you the reason why I asked that last question is you said something very interesting uh, just a moment, a couple minutes ago. You mentioned that, you know, facing what you did on top of Dragster, how you did it, the compartmentalization, the logic based thinking to, to fight the fear as you're going through the line before getting on the ride. You said you were able to learn, kind of hone in on those skills or really develop those skills for, to get yourself on top of Dragster and then you have used them elsewhere. So can you give, share some ideas or examples of where else you've used those skills? Yeah, so I mean, I use it honestly on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, I've got a nightly routine where I, you know, watch my shows, my Netflix, my videos, whatever it might be, coaster POVs. Um, and whatever I have in the day that stresses me out, you know, whether, whether it be looking forward to like an exam that I have or a job interview, just even down to the simplest thing like i've got to take time out of my day to go get an oil change just simple things that uproot your daily schedule i tell myself at the end of the day i'm always going to be able to return to my nightly ritual i'm always going to be able to go back and watch coaster povs watch my netflix whatever it might be and and you know at, at its core that's essentially returning back to the station after the ride so apply that to bigger things you know like i was just mentioning i had my senior design project and presentation recently and it you know I had, it was on a friday and i was really stressed about friday and i kept telling myself throughout the week friday's just another day you're going to wake up you're going to conquer this thing it's scary but you're going to be fine you've done these things before and then at the end of the day you're going to come home and you're going to get to do what makes you happy at the end of the day and you're back to your normalcy um so i mean really the best example is everyday life i do it every day for anything that stresses me out, but I also apply it to, you know, big activities, big, big events too. That's awesome. I love how it's like, you kind of do it on a regular basis, just routine stuff to kind of center yourself, but also for obviously big things, which makes sense. That's like, you know, very obvious that you'd want to use those skills for the things that can be very intimidating, like a big project for school. And, and I totally makes sense, you know, test anxiety. That's something that a lot of people face. I've, I've had it in my life in, in parts of college early on, at least not so much later on. Um, so yeah, and it totally makes sense. Yeah. That, that's, that's great. That's really great. Uh, so I'm going to ask you a couple of questions here. And, and if it's too personal, of course, you know, I totally understand, but just to frame things for you, 
Um, you have an understanding of what Coaster Challenge is about. You know, David, before we start recording, shared with you his, his journey and, and uh, how, for example, coasters have basically almost cured him of his Tourette's and definitely keeps his symptoms at bay without medication being required and, you know, physical things. But, you know, certainly mental illness, um, mental issues, if you will, challenges, um, coasters can help with stress, just stress as an overall, you know, that can, that can actually be clinically other things, but, you know, anxiety, depression, um, uh, you know, autism, which is basically a mental, mental illness, um, you know, it's, it's uh, based on the brain and so forth. Um, I am, for example, you know, just to kind of share from my perspective here, I'm, I have bipolar disorder and I've had a few depressions in my life along with the anxiety that goes along with it, the ping pong between the two. Um, have you experienced, and again, if, if, if you don't want to share, totally understand. Have you experienced depression and anxiety, like clinical depression, and anxiety in your life? Um, I've definitely experienced higher levels of anxiety and levels of depression. I don't know if they could be marked clinical. Um, I've never received help or medication for them, but I've definitely gone through uh, you know, lower periods in my, in my life, you know, just a general fluctuation, which I, I think most people have. Um, but yeah, I don't, I've never been, you know, stressed or low to the point that it's been marked clinical. Okay. Okay. Let me ask, let me ask you this then. So understand like no clinical help needed, no medication for like for the depression, like the one that lasted the longest, how long would you say it lasted where those symptoms were continuous essentially? Um, uh, I don't know, actually, I'd probably say probably a few months. Um, oh, okay. It was, it was after like a big transition. Uh, it was going from middle school to high school. So oh, it's a yeah. big change, a lot of new variables. Um, I didn't immediately jump into clubs or activities in high school. So I kind of was just going through the days. Um, and so it was a little bit hard to fit in, find your group, you know, and then right. I joined cross country, I think like four or five months after I started, maybe three months. I don't know actually when I started, but it was sometime freshman year of high school and I joined cross country and I uh, built this camaraderie and got a big group of friends and a team and, and it, that was, that pretty much settled it. But I'd, I'd say that was the longest stint was just the, the kind of the feeling of isolation. And it was mostly self-imposed, but. Okay. Uh, that's, that's oh, fair Sometimes we're our, our own worst enemies. So that's, that, yeah, absolutely. Understandable. So I'm assuming based on, you know, the time period age-wise, you said between middle school and high school, that was before you wrote Topful Dragster, right? No, uh, Topful oh. Dragster, I wrote within the year of riding Georgia Cyclone. Oh, oh, so still fairly young. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. during that depression, you know, you know, granted you went through that for several months and that's totally normal. That's very, depression is a very common illness. Um, you had the skills of the compartmentalization that you, you know, developed with topsoil dragster. So did you use those during that three month period, that approximate three month period, that was your depression not as bad as it maybe would have been otherwise because you used those, those tools? Yeah, I, I think my depression that surrounded that time frame. I don't know if it necessarily would have been worse without it but i think the fact that i was able to find a solution for myself faster was due to that compartmentalizing so okay. you know i as i went further and further along i was like what's what's got me down what's the issue here and i was like oh it's you know isolation new school new people um 
you know, just a whole new set of variables that I wasn't used to. And I wasn't really making friends or reaching out to anybody or any groups. Um, and I was like, no, here's what needs to change. I just answered my question. Uh, so after breaking it down, I figured out what I needed to do. And I, I found a group that I wanted to join and the rest is history. Wow. That's, that's very powerful, Ryan. And, you know, I got to say you're, well, yeah, yeah. Just got a couple things to unpack here. This is fantastic. So normally when we think about facing fear and conquering fear is there's those immediate, you know, those kind of several things I mentioned earlier about feeling good about yourself because you didn't chicken out, you know, feeling great because you just got on this great ride that you enjoyed and then, you know, opening yourself up to these, these future things. I and mean, these are all great things. And, you know, we, I talk about, I've talked about, especially in the first season, but here in the second season, that fear facing fear and being able to face fear is, is a mental equivalent to or analog to weightlifting. You're, you're, you know, it's granted, you're not, you're training, you're not training a muscle, the brain really isn't a muscle, but you know, you're still doing strength training, you're, you're facing it and so forth. And coasters inherently, they will, they will make, they will scare our mind. You know, even if we're coaster enthusiasts, oh, I'll get on anything. There's still a little bit there. And that's where the excitement, the thrill seeking and so forth, the adrenaline comes in, you know, because your mind's, you know, your body is experiencing this and your brain's processing, your mind's processing it. So you're doing that strength, that fear strength training just by getting on thrill rides and coasters and, and so forth. Even if you don't think you're afraid of things, there's still that training that's happening regardless, which is good. And I strongly believe, and based on my own experiences and others that I've talked to that I know, that by doing, by going to parks, going to coast, getting on coasters, getting on rides, you're able to face other things, other fears in life, you know, test anxiety I mentioned earlier, you, you've talked about, you know, projects in school, or you mentioned a few other examples, like changing jobs, moving, you know, just being able to you know, you're able to face those types of stressful, potentially stressful situations, anxiety and fear situations better just based on that training. And I, and I, again, strongly believe in that. I've just seen it again and again and again. And you probably have that certainly, but besides that, you've come in here and I've, again, never seen a guest come in here before with this, where there's this sort of conscious things, this compartmentalization that you do, that you learn to, in order to face your fears, to get on top of the dragster that you're able to use you know, the things I was talking about a moment ago, the fear training, that's subconscious stuff. That's not things we would actively think about, um, you know, we, other than seeing the results of like, you know, like I, one of the results that I have just because I've trained myself on, you know, effectively with fear, facing fear is not only can I get on any coaster now, but my first time riding a coaster, you know, I'm putting my, my arms up. I'm, I'm not grabbing on. I have no idea what this ride's going to feel like because I've never been on it before, but I'm not afraid. And I'm not even not afraid. I'm just, I'm embracing it and just all in. I'm like, oh yeah, bring it on. And I didn't used to be that way, you know, a couple of years ago even. Um, but yeah, this compartmentalization things that you do is very powerful. And I think, you know, again, this is not just you and me having a conversation. There's an audience listening here and that audience keeps growing and growing, which we're very proud of here at Coaster Challenge. And I think you're, you know, you've got, that's part of your toolkit. One of the things I talk about with self-care, with depression, stress, anxiety, et cetera, is to have things that you can do to distract yourself, to keep yourself centered. And, and you certainly do that. But on top of that, you are, you are attacking these situations, fear and whatnot, head on with logic and in your conscious brain. And that's really impressive. I appreciate that. 
yeah, I absolutely agree with you, though. It's definitely um, uh, you called it, I think fear training is the word you used. Um, it, it, I, yeah, it's like stimulation. You stimulate that fear, the part of your brain that deals with fear every time you get on a coaster. And, you know, every every off season, um, which I guess that's not really a thing down in Florida, but, you know, up in up in Georgia, Six Flags Over Georgia shuts down. Carowinds, which is the next closest park, shuts down. Right. Um, and there's this thing that I've always talked about as long as I've been a coaster enthusiast, and I call it the uh, acclimation ride or the first big ride of the season. It, it always feels more thrilling. The drop feels further. And uh, I think you've now tied it together for me. I have a feeling what that is, is just, you know, four or five months in the off season, lack of stimulation. So your brain's not as used to that form of fear that's coming at you from an amusement ride. So that first ride just feels that much crazier. Um, and so I, I, you know, that might be an actual example or a proof of what you were just talking about with fear training that, you know, you take a break from it, you kind of, you know, use it or lose it type of deal. Um, yeah. But yeah, I definitely think there's, there's something there to that for sure. Yeah, no, definitely. And you bring up an interesting topic right there because I, I, as an enthusiast, I've never had that issue because I pretty much, by the time I became an enthusiast, you know, I really got into coasters. I was living in California. And then other than a couple of years living up in Washington, where certainly what you're describing is the case, but that was a very brief time for me. Um, I moved from California to, to Florida. And so I've always, you know, pretty much always as an enthusiast been in a year round area for parks and coasters. But at the same time, I've got a lot of friends that live places like Ohio and the Midwest and New Jersey and Pennsylvania and, you know, all over where they, you know, unless they travel, hop on a plane or get in a big road trip, they're not getting on coasters, not going to parks for months. And I know some of them get depression and, and so forth. And it's, that gets into a whole other topic area. Because again, a lot of what we do in this podcast is try to give people advice. And, you know, for example, you sharing this compartmentalization idea and your examples of how you do it that might inspire some people and help some people. Well, you know, I've talked a little bit about this on the podcast, but not much. But, you know, I'm not, not trying to say that only being a coaster enthusiast, it's like your only hobby. I'm not saying you, Ryan, I'm just saying people in general, is necessarily wrong, but it can be a problem. Uh, anyone having just one singular interest can be kind of a problem. It can limit you socially. Um, it can become an obsession where it becomes unhealthy. Um, and, you know, I myself have many interests, coasters being one of my biggest ones, certainly. So, you know, certainly for people that can't get to parks all the time, that's especially where you should be concerned about not, you know, having interests besides coasters. You know, I love going to the movies, I like video games. Video games very much keep you in the moment, much more than, say, just watching a movie or watching a TV show. I love sports cars, and I love going on drives and, you know, doing upgrades on my cars and, and stuff like going to car events. I'm in car clubs and, you know, all, all these different things that I do, other things as well. Um, so, you know, what you shared about, you know, where you know, you're one of those people that are many people in the country and the world where you not have you don't have good access to parks year round. That's that should be a warning to people that you know you can't just depend upon coasters and parks to carry you through the whole year long, and and you, know, you have to think about other things or maybe save up to travel here and there during the off season, as I know many friends do 
had many friends from cold weather states come down here to Florida from, you know, December through, well, you know, March, April, you know, through that period. So, so that's a good point. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's very good advice. Yeah. Uh, yes. Definitely have more, more than one hobby or interest to keep you going because they're not all going to be firing on all cylinders at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that I think you brought up there and kind of inadvertently is in a way, if you're, if you don't get on your favorite coaster, you know, very frequently, if you have, you have, you have a break because you're, you're busy with, with work or school or whatever it may be, or you're just you're not getting to parks because of that, because you have that little break, it can be even more exciting or more satisfactory uh, or satisfying, if you will, to when you get back on your favorite coaster or go back to a park in general because you had that break. And it's not necessarily that you your your quote unquote strength of fear or facing fear got weaker. It's just because you've not had that same stimulus for a little while. So it's refreshing and it's it's kind of feels new in its own way. Versus, you know, I have friends, not gonna name names here in Orlando, um, you know, and they're at the parks every day. And again, that's very it can be healthy because it's a positive place to be. But the problem with that is you're not getting a break so it's, it's not it's it can become monotonous as well mm-hmm. so so there's that positive side of that break of you know say those few months where when you get back it's super exciting for example you know we're recording here in uh in middle of april and i've got again i've got a lot of friends up in ohio and i've got you know i'm not going to be there i kind of wish i could be but i've got other stuff going on but uh, i got a whole bunch of friends going to king's island grand opening this weekend and you know they're so excited because of the home park and you know many of them have not been at a park in months as we were talking about so yeah there's that positive side of that you know looking forward to that and being able to experience it like it's new again so mm-hmm. yeah, yeah absolutely yeah so so taking a break moving away from fear and kind of going to like a 30,000 foot level, how would you say that coasters and theme parks have had a significant positive impact on you in any other ways? Uh, yeah. So I'd say the biggest way besides, you know, helping me with fear throughout my life is just solidifying the idea that I want to be involved with in some way, or as it turns out, be a mechanical engineer. Um, I've, I'm an AV geek. So I've been in aviation for as, as long as I can remember. Oh, nice. Um, so that's that's always been a side that I've been fascinated in. And I knew from the moment that I could, I guess, have my own conscious thought that I wanted to work with airplanes or around them or, you know, anything that pertains to them. And then I started going to parks more often um, with my family, of course, didn't ride anything at the time, but just sat there and gazed at all the mechanical contraptions that exist mm-hmm. on the I mean, just from the station to the bottom of the lift hill, there's like 15 different mechanical systems that take place. Right. Um, and right. I saw those and was like, I, I want to know how those work. I want to know how to be able to design them. I want to design them. So I think it was like age six. Uh, I got back from an amuse- I got back from Six Flags one day. I looked at my parents like, I- I'm going to build coasters. That's what I want to do for a living. Um, and so, of course, it's it's flopped back and forth. But really, you know, aviation set me on the path of wanting to be an engineer and theme parks solidified it. And now here I am today. And, you know, I have it all to owe to basically those two interests that, you know, I'm only like three weeks away from graduating with a degree in mechanical engineering. And hopefully at some point I'll be able to work on some of these amusement rides, but you know, it's a very small community. We'll see. But I'd say that's the biggest impact it's had is just helping me know what I want to do just, just from watching. That's, that's really awesome. And you know, I, 
and I talk about this periodically on the podcast because we do have a wide ranging audience, including very young listeners that are in their teens. We've been at guests, you know, teenage guests that are on the show. And a lot of the kind of people in that age range, they're focused on, you know, what they want to do in their life. And for many of them, it's how can I be able to travel a lot? in my job so that I can get to parks or how can I get, how can I work in the industry um, because they love parks. And that's kind of a direct thing. You know, it's like, I love parks. I want to work in parks. And uh, right. for you, it's sort of like a little bit step back from that is that, you know, you love the, you know, as I do the, how these rides work and the mechanics of them and the, the, the kinetics and, and, you know, similarly with planes, I'm a big, I'm a love planes. I love, traveling on commercial planes. I've been on almost every commercial aircraft from Boeing and Airbus that's out there. And I've been on the Embraer's and the CRJs and things like that. Um, but also I love military hardware, military jets. And I love going to air shows. I've been to many air shows, seen the Blue Angels countless times. And each mm -hmm. time I see them, it's, it, it's, it's like I've never seen them before that exciting, you know, kind of thing there. Uh, speaking of other hobbies, but um, so yeah, I can relate. And, and so for you, you, you know, yeah, you might want to, it sounds like you'd like to work with the parks and all that, but you also, again, that logic thinking, the problem with going after, you know, I'm going to work in the parks, I'm going to work in that industry. Well, a lot of the park-based jobs, they're not necessarily, and this gets into a little bit of a controversial area, but they're not necessarily the kinds of jobs that are career-oriented jobs. Uh, it's akin to say working in fast food. A lot of the a lot of the park jobs, you know, they're outsourced. They like Cedar Point brings in people from Europe. Disney does the same thing here in uh, Epcot at World Showcase. Uh, you know, they're low-paying jobs, and unless you get into management and get into some more specialized areas, it's hard to support a family and support you know a career that you'll be happy with in terms of generating enough money because. You know, that's the way society is. Money is a big part of that. Unfortunately, it is the way it is. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, and again, it's not not saying that you can't get into it. I've got friends that are working Universal Creative and they have wonderful jobs. They pay well, amazing lives and get to travel as part of that. I've got friends that are in management on the operation side, for example, at Universal and other parks. And yeah, they do well. Again, you can get in there, but it can be hard to get to the point of a decent paying job. And just the way it is and that, you know we're not going to get into you know how to change that because that's a whole other problem um, or if it could be changed just by the scale of economics but uh, in any case you, you know you realize you know even though some of the things you said that you know you may not be able to work in the parks and maybe get a job that pays well enough and whatnot so you accept that hey okay i you know i'm going to be a mechanical engineer and i can do all sorts of things and, and you know maybe eventually get into the parks but i can do other things too and that's a very logical way to look at things where you can still be tangentially doing things that excite you, uh, but have a much wider availability of jobs out there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and that was the thinking behind it. Uh, I was originally going to go into aerospace engineering and, uh, uh, you know, I didn't, well, actually, so my dad's a mechanic, uh, uh, engine mechanic for Delta. Oh, wow. Um, and so he works closely with aerospace engineers at delta and he was talking to them about me was that when i was applying to colleges and they're like go me mechanical engineering do not go aerospace because you'll pigeonhole yourself into one facet of engineering yeah yep. and then you won't be able to do like what you were saying you know work tangentially along what you want to be able to do until you either get there or you're satisfied with where you are and and so yeah that's that's the route i went and you know what you were just discussing is a large factor as to why i went the route that i did um 
because you know i mean ideally i'd love to work for bnm right i want to design coasters that's what everyone wants to do but sure. um realistically it's it's not it's a kind of a far out approach and uh you know like you said working tangentially and keeping close to the industry whether it be through going to parks or uh you know building hobbies that involve the industry or whatever it might be that's that's the best way to be close to it while also you know living a realistic lifestyle at the same time yeah i i'm gonna guess i might be off with this but maybe they're in terms of like actually designing the track i'm not talking about like the theming or you know the theming is important too i mean my number one coaster has amazing theming velocicoaster and you know mm -hmm. there were probably a number of people i one of them is a friend of mine uh, that worked on Velocicoaster on the theming side and they did an amazing job. But just in terms of like the mechanical side, the actual track and everything going along with it, in terms of coaster designers, you know, your Alan Schultz of the world, I'm going to guess there are less than 100 people at any given time on this planet that actually do that, actually for a job. There's, you know, there's only a handful of coaster companies and, you know, it's only so many people each of those companies that is designing coasters. I mean, that's why some of them are so famous, you know? Right. Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yes. I, you know, so it's very limiting, very limiting. And by the way, I caught that you mentioned there that your dad, what he does now, I get why you've lived in Atlanta and Georgia because Delta, you yeah. know, that is their headquarters there at Atlanta and, and you know, ATL. And, and yeah, so it makes sense that you guys are there. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm glad you got that advice too, from, uh, because of, because of his work. That's awesome. So yeah, very thankful that that happened. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation so far. And again, you know, I have to tell you, Ryan, I've thought about, because again, I'm one of the executive producers of this podcast. So part of what I do is I guide this podcast. And part of that is working in guests, but part of that is also, you know, changing formats and, and coming up with ideas. And, and I, you know, periodically I'll think about, and I, as I thought about recently, you know, here we are in our second season. Do we need to change our, our, our interview format? Yes, we've been doing it for, you know, we've interviewed over, well over 50 guests at this point. And your this kind of first third first almost half of the interview and the things this we've discussed here and as i mentioned that you brought up things that no other guest has brought up has reaffirmed to me no i i do not want to change the interview format i mean there are questions that we ask individuals that we don't ask others as i'm going to be asking you at the end because it's you know unique questions about what they do or how they work in the industry or cover the industry but that first half that fear journey and so forth what you have um, told us about today because of me asking those questions is is priceless. And again, I want to thank you for providing that unique perspective. Of course. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah. I mean, if, if you want my input on it, I wouldn't change it at all. I mean, every person is unique in their own way. So if their responses and their methods for dealing with stress or fear, like we were discussing, are all going to be unique. Nobody's going to have the same method. So you're never going to get the same answer. And right. for those that are listening, the viewers that, you know, are trying to overcome this fear or hop on their ride or whatever it might be, it might, they might not have something that's resonated with them yet. It might be the 230th person that you interviewed that tells something that that person gets and that resonates with them. So yeah, I would never stop asking these questions. I think, you know, the fundamental point of the podcast is to help people conquer these fears and be more confident in the decisions they make. And, you know, as long as you can continue to provide unique viewpoints on that to as many viewers as you can I, I wouldn't change it thank you i appreciate that uh, affirmation there and uh, yeah again it's it's been a great discussion here so far and i you know, appreciate your words of wisdom thank you very much so next kind of few questions i want to ask you which again we typically ask our our guests are just fun questions um you know it kind of gets interesting stories out and things like that so 
what would you say has been your craziest moment ever on a coaster? So I can kind of answer that in two ways. My craziest experience on a coaster would have to be uh, the rollback I experienced on top throw just because of how rare it is. Um, <laughs> I, I know I've been top throw oriented in this interview and I'm sorry, but no, no, that's okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's, that's definitely been the craziest moment I've had on there, but I, I'd say like the uh, most odd funniest moment I've had was uh, on Goliath at six flags over Georgia. Um, we were going up the lift hill one time. I was in the back row and I heard a bunch of change fall out of somebody's pocket in the row in front of me. Oh, oh. And uh, as we crested the hill and started down, I saw a quarter slow. It was like in slow motion tumbling through the air until it dinged me right in the forehead. Ooh. And uh, a quarter at the bottom of a hyper coaster's hill, it'll it'll do some damage to your forehead. Um, but of course, it was funny. My friends cracked up at me and uh, we got back to the station, of course with any coaster like that you cycle it so we got out we hop right back in and it happened literally to me again the next ride oh. completely different person got hit in the face i think it was a nickel the second time but it was two times in a row same day i got hit oh in the head my gosh now so, did yeah, it that's <laughs> did you get cut at all like was there blood or no no blood it just you know it stung for a second i mean it Oh, that's good. Picture quarter hitting your head at 60 miles an hour. That's about what it would be. But well, I guess it wouldn't be 60 because of the relative speed. But um, yeah, no, it, it, I didn't even feel it once I got off. It was short lived, but, you know, it stung for just a second. But the best part was like the coin fell down my shirt. So I got to keep the, the first <laughs> coin. So I don't know where it is. I kept it, though. I never spent it. No, that's awesome. I would keep it, too. Yeah, I mean, I mean, a little bit serious here for a moment, but. If, if thankfully it is relative speed because it was moving as well. If it, if, if it, you were standing still and it hit you coming straight at you at 60, we might not be having this conversation right now. So if you think about yeah, it, no. not a bullet, yeah, because, sure. but still it's metal. And yeah. So thankfully it was relative speed and you can laugh it off because it wasn't that much of an impact, but yeah, that's, that's interesting. But yeah, certainly yeah. the first answer, you know, the, the you gave about the, you know, kind of the unique one about having a rollback. Um, I've ridden Top Loader Extra a handful of times, not many, because I don't live, I never lived in Sandusky. I've been to Cedar Point, you know, a bunch of times, but not enough to statistically be a likelihood that I've gotten a rollback. I mean, quite frankly, there have been times where I've been at Cedar Point where Top Loader Extra was down because, you know, Inciman catapult coast are not the most reliable ones out there as nope. you know so you know but uh yeah and and but i can relate um in terms of you know seeking that out because i'm i have friends you know some of my ohio friends that you know that's their home park they've gotten the rollbacks because they've been there many times and similarly for me uh, i live five minutes from universal orlando and my number one coaster at least at this point in time and has been this way for about a year now is velocicoaster and I've ridden Velocicoaster at this point uh, almost 140 times. It's the only coaster I keep track of how many re-rides I've had. And I continue to do that, at least for now. And I have been seeking a rollback on it because with Velocicoaster, the rollback would occur in the middle of the ride, not the beginning, like Topful Dragster. And it has an automatic built-in correction mechanism. So... You know, with Topple Dragster, you know, you roll back and you get launched again, you know, and so forth. But mm -hmm. with with uh, Velocicoaster, because it's a multi-launch coaster, it winds up becoming effectively a uh, quad launch coaster in a rollback scenario. So um, I have I would love to experience that. I have friends you know, of all things 
defies logic and 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 odds that we're just visiting that got them you know you know it just happens you know it, it happens on occasion and um but i've not experienced a rollback yet that i hope to <laughs> but what i have experienced is what's called a relaunch which is where because of the block system or something whatever comes up the block brakes on the boost launch are used as brakes and it stops the train and i my my buddy bennett and i uh, were on, I think we're in the back row, as I recall, and we we got stomped on the track. And initially, we thought we might get evac, which could have been cool, of course, uh, as evacs go. But the better thing, which is what we got, is after about ten minutes of sitting out there, uh, we got launched backwards and then launched forwards to the boost launch again, and then finished the ride. So we got a triple launch effectively from the whole ride, from the start to finish, and uh, it was pretty cool because. The uh, backwards launch was not terribly forceful and we didn't go that far back into the first half of the coaster, but the boost launch was more powerful because it had to be because we were coming into it at a slower speed. And right. it's just, you know, again, you and I both being engineers, being into technology with these uh, magnetic launch coasters, especially LSMs, it's fascinating how the technology can uh, is able to correct for situations like that and be able to, you know, get the coaster through the course and, you know, it's, it's very flexible. So, right. which is nice yeah. for capacity, you know, besides being cool, oh. you know. So. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. Definitely a huge increase in capacity. I mean, Top Though Dragster has the rollback, depending on how they deal with the, uh, the rollback, the brake fins. Yeah. Um, like, I've seen them keep the fins up, and the car rolls back at, like, two miles an hour down the entire launch track. And I'm like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> you know, it takes 10 minutes for them to reset. But uh, LSM is just... They're, yeah, they're unique. They don't have that issue and they can break, but also drive. So they're just fascinating technology. I'm very excited to see that, that market grow. Oh yeah. The coaster world. Yeah. I mean, there's still lift hill coasters are being built, especially, you know, when you get look at companies like RMC, but launch coasters are becoming more and more common and, you know, Intamin is my favorite manufacturer. What they are doing with their LSMs is just incredible. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. coaster, I've written Pantheon recently for the first time, which is now my number two and just, just such amazing coaster designs and, and the dynamics that they can create during their rides from using a slow launch to create hang time on the first inversion on Pantheon, you know, to, you know, faster launches for, uh, you know, higher G forces and air time, et cetera. So yeah, it's all amazing stuff. So, but yeah, you've got a couple really cool answers there for the craziest moments. Those are pretty crazy moments. So thank you. So I think I, I have a couple of theories, but uh, what is your favorite coaster? I always try to figure out, you know, before the, the guest tells me what their favorite it is but what what is your favorite coaster i bet it's not what you think it is uh, my current <laughs> okay. my current favorite uh, it it switches frequently but it, currently as it stands my favorite is steel vengeance oh okay that's not what i was guessing i was going to guess top Thrill dragster or maverick uh top thrill and maverick are both they're both in the top five okay they're, they're not they're not number one right now gotcha okay i figured they were up there at least okay makes sense mm -hmm. but okay well steel vengeance um that is, you know, you don't have to explain that. I get it. It's not my top coaster. It's, you know, I'm probably going to get uh, get hung in effigy here. It's not even in my top 10, but I've been on it. Um, I, I, It's a great coaster. It's just, I'm more of an intimate die than RMC. So there's only... Uh, Intamin's my my love too. Uh, <laughs> RMC's, it's, it's taken, it, it surprised me because I, I didn't ride an RMC until recent. Um, 
but Intamin has always been and will always be my favorite. I just love what they do with their rides. Uh, they're always pushing the envelope of design and elements, and I just think that they just have great rides in general. And I'll take a little bit of downtime due to reliability over reliability for the fact that their rides are just so good. But uh, yeah, we'll see. the The Steel Vengeance might be uprooted, though. I do have a trip in May, two trips in May, uh, one in early May down to uh, Bush Gardens, Tampa, and SeaWorld to ride oh. Wazi. Yes. Um, and then I'll be going late May to ride Velocicoaster Universal. So oh. I, will, I will get back to you if that gets uprooted. Those two might change it. Oh, yeah. Well, and also feel free to reach out to me because I live, you know, again, five minutes Universal and I live only about an hour, a little more than that from Bush Gardens. I happen to meet up with you when you come down here. I love getting on coasters, you know, with people for their first rides and get, seeing their experience and what the reaction is. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll reach out as we get closer with those dates. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, but yeah, I uh, I would not be surprised if uh, if there's some uprooting there. Even um, Steel Vengeance with uh, with Iron Quasi, you know, even neglecting Velocicoaster for a moment there. But uh, uh, you know, I, what I do is I don't keep track of you know I've been on nearly 400 coasters at this point. I'm going to hit my 400th very soon. Um, I don't keep. I, I have friends. And I, I call them crazy, but I love them nonetheless. I'm being, you know, I'm just joking here, but um, they rank every single coaster. And I, I just, I don't have the time for that. I just, I don't have the mental capacity for that. No. Uh, and the no. spreadsheets that they use. But I, so I just keep an, a, an ongoing top 10. And, yeah, that's, that's where I'm at. And so I can relate kind of what I feel about coasters and what matters to me, what doesn't matter to me based on what's in that top 10. And for example, and my top 10 contains five Intamins and only two RMCs. So that, you know, kind of, kind of, you know, kind of shows you kind of what my preference is. And to me, it's the most common one in that top 10. Um, you know, I, and you used to mention something interesting about reliability. Of course, Intamin is known for not having the best reliability. And uh, I was talking to a friend of mine, actually, he's coming here this week and he's actually just got to Bush Gardens um, today and wrote Iron Crossy and he thinks it might be his number one. Speaking of what you might be going through pretty soon. Uh, and um, we were talking about, because he can be very opinionated as I can be. And he and I were talking about, you know, what our favorite companies are. And he said that Intimate is not his favorite because of their reliability. He, and he ranks their coasters based on their reliability or ranks coasters period based on uptime. I don't factor uptime in really at all. I don't. Mm -hmm. uh, Lightning Rod is in my top 10. It's my, my other RMC besides Iron Quasi that's in my top 10. And I, you know, it is a pain in the neck to get on, but I just rank it based on when I get on it and how it rides. Right. But, but yeah, hey, I'm the same way. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. Well, yeah, I'm very curious to see what Iron Gwazi and uh, Velocicoaster do to your rankings. They'll definitely be in your top 10, I, I can tell already. But uh, yeah, oh, so, for sure. Yeah. So, going to the other end of the spectrum, real quick here, what is your least favorite coaster? Uh, it's got to be Nighthawk at Carowinds. <laughs> yeah, that's a very common one. I've heard that a lot. Um, I've not ridden it as Nighthawk. I've been a Carowind several times since it's been there, but I just, I've already ridden it. So even to get the credit, I wrote it as Stealth back when it was incredible mm -hmm. opening year. And what was it? 2000 back in California's Great America back in the Paramount days. And right. uh, yeah, and I, I, I loved it. So I kind of almost don't want to tarnish that, I guess. You know, and I'm all yeah, about Fury, but I'm at Carowind's anyway. <laughs> yeah, so. Fury. I mean, there's nothing else to do there when you look at just Fury. 
Yep, yep. Fury's the only yeah. B and M in my top ten. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's yeah, I think, I think the yeah, I think Fury's my only B and M as well. Um, but yeah, it, I don't know. It's just Nighthawks. It's nowadays it's rough. It, I honestly, the last three times I've been there, it was closed due to maintenance issues. Yeah, so I just you know, for me, it's not even more of like a my least favorite ride experience ride. It's just a combination of. I don't like the ride experience as much and I feel like it's taking up some space that could be utilized for a really cool groundbreaking coaster that could, you know, put Carowinds even further on the map. Um, so just from the standpoint of like, it's holding Carowinds back, I kind of don't like it. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's always yeah, hard. I, was, I love all coasters. Yeah. It's hard to rank them like that, but. I was literally having a conversation, not with the friend I mentioned a moment ago, but another friend um, is actually, he, uh, his parents live in North Carolina and he spent a lot of time there because of that. And he goes to Carowinds all the time. He's been there the past few days. And we we're talking about how that park, what could improve that park. Cause it's very top heavy with fury and, uh, you know, talking about the coasters that could be put in there that could make things better, but there certainly are candidates of coasters that could be taken out from Carowinds, you know, Nighthawk being one of them, uh, you know, hurler and, and, uh, you know, and mm -hmm. being RMC would be another likely candidate, uh, you know, and so forth. But there, there's a few coasters there that, and that, you know, that would be better served being replaced. So definitely understand where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. So getting into the kind of last part of the interview here, um, this is, again, I've been looking forward to the whole interview, but I'm literally looking forward to this because of the uniquity yeah. of this. You're the first person we've had on this podcast that, that uh, really, it has this hobby, um, and I think it's so interesting. I just want to learn about it. Uh, is besides being a coaster enthusiast and mechanical engineer, about to get your degree, which is very awesome. Congratulations on that, by the way. Thank uh, you. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So, kind of coupling those together in a way, um, you have a hobby and uh, uh, you know an equipment for it of three D printing. And you've been working on projects where you're 3D printing coaster-related items. So talk to me about what you've been doing with your 3D printer and how it relates to, to coasters. I've kind of already hinted, but, you know, please tell us more. Yeah, so to, to start on this, I kind of got to take it back to last May on, uh, I was at Carowinds, shocking. Hmm. Um, and we were looking at the, uh, the now infamous nano coasters that are, all throughout this country um, yep. and I was picking a couple up and it uh, this distant memory popped into my head from when I went to Cedar Point the first time and it was this it was a model which turned out to be the coaster dynamic statics models I'm sure you remember those um, the little figures on the track oh yeah, yeah molded yeah. on the base yeah and I, I wanted one as a kid when I was there but I never picked one up and I was like I need to look into those and see if they still make them and they don't so the need arose and, you know, being the type of person I am, I'm like, I have a problem, let's solve it. So um, I found some, some individuals on Instagram uh, who were kind of doing what I wanted to do. And I reached out and just got some insight from them and got some tips. And I just dove into it and started making a static model of Fury, given that was the ride I was most into at the, at the time. Oh, nice. um, and yeah, so I designed it in, the, in a 3D CAD software and then I started 3D printing the parts and just just to create a little static display of these coasters that I love for myself. And, uh, you know, it's been a slow process because of school and other things that I have going on. But I just produced another one, which was Maverick from Cedar Point. And um, 
it's just it's just a really fun hobby that allows me to pour my desire to design and create things and be creative into this love of coasters that I have while also creating these really cool keepsakes and souvenirs or mementos that you know show every time I walk by I'm like it's like I'm there but really small versions so that's kind of what I've been doing with my printers and that's been fun so far that's very cool that's very cool so go, going back before the 3d printing part of this you were talking about the coaster dynamic static models so you know how the coaster dynamics models they're generally they're you know they're wood and they're not painted they're just monotone mm -hmm. so uh which is interesting because i have the uh coaster cutout the kind of the newer ones they do for velocicoaster where it actually has the blue stripe the famous blue stripe in the front you know the zero car mm -hmm. And uh, it's so cool that they actually use color on that. I'm guessing Universal probably was, was instrumental on that, you know, because they sell them, of course, Universal Parks. That was obviously, a, you know, uh, it's not something where just Coaster Dynamics did. It had to be licensed and everything. So, right. but um, uh, one of my favorite coasters uh, now lost, unfortunately, it's no longer around, is Volcano. And, mm -hmm. you know, one of those old static models was Volcano, where it was, uh, you know, going, it was basically like a, you know, vertical section of track, or almost vertical section of track to the launch and that, you know, the trains on the, on the track and um, was over at my, uh, my buddy, um, uh, Mark and Austin. So Austin from Houston Insider and Mark from El Toro Ryan, they live just a few minutes away here. I was over at their place. This was during the pandemic in the beginning, uh, maybe, I don't know, May or June or so. So the parks have been closed for a while. And I, you know, was hanging out in their living room and I noticed, I'd never noticed it before. And I, it was apparently new. It was one of those models for Volcano, but it was painted. And I was like, Mark, where did you get this? Because I wasn't even making the connection with Coaster Dynamics. I thought it was something he bought because it looked mm -hmm. amazing. It's beautiful. Well, I mentioned the pandemic. So here, <laughs> Mark couldn't go to parks for, you know, for several months. So what does he do? Is he took that Coaster Dynamics model and painted it and just, and is painstakingly by hand and he did such an amazing job and it's just like he could probably sell those for hundreds of dollars but it would also be a lot of labor too um, right so i mean that's something that is interesting about what you're doing with your maverick project is you know you're making it authentic you know very realistic looking you know the track design the, the train design but also the, the colors too so I, I just find that interesting now so so you started with fury and then Maverick mm -hmm. is your next one, right? Yes, yeah, Mavericks. Well, I'm done with it, but I'm currently producing kits. But yeah, that, that's that's right. what I just finished. Right, that's very exciting because I'm getting one of those kits as we talked about. <laughs> Absolutely. So I have to ask. So I know that you know. So Fury, we already established Fury and Maverick are both in your top ten, but your number one is Steel Vengeance. So why not do a Steel Vengeance one? to be honest with you the train just doesn't do it for me i never cared for the look of the the steel vengeance train it was kind of bland to me i didn't right it just didn't click with me so i didn't feel like it was worth putting the time into it but um from what i've seen so far of like the guazi train that one's definitely on my list of ones that i want to do now so it's not it's nothing against the ride per se it has more to do with the aesthetic of the ride uh, and why it, i pick it. it so yeah i mean when you come down here to florida this this summer after you're done with school, you're gonna, well, first of all, I think you're gonna love Iron Gwazi and Velocicoaster just based on your, your coaster tastes. 
uh, but also when you combine in the trains and the track for, you know, you're, you're going to, you're going to want to make both of those projects. We already talked about you doing Velocicoaster potentially, but yeah, so yeah. That you're going to definitely get some inspiration for future projects for sure. Oh, for sure. I've already assumed it. So they're on my list. I just don't know when I'm going to do them, but they're oh, already cool. on there. I don't, I don't even need to ride them to know I want to do them. Gotcha. But. Right. Makes sense. Now, did I hear you correctly? You have multiple 3d printers. Yes, I have. Currently I have five. You, did you say five? Um, yeah, I have, I have five printers. Um, three of them are standard FDM or FFM. Uh, so they take the spools of plastic, if you've ever seen this style of printer, and they feed the plastic out, melt it, and then lay it down in lines. Right. Uh, so I have three of those. One of them I recently acquired to help print these, these kits. Um, and the other two I use for prototyping and other engineering-related projects. And then okay. the last two printers that i have are resin printers so they are sla or msla um so they basically you pour resin into a vat and there's an lcd screen with uv lights below them and uh the lcd screen turns clear essentially it turns on uh wherever you want the resin to cure and the uv light it's uv curable resin so the uv light cures the resin in those little spots right. um, and then it just builds up your parts so i use those for the models because they get way better accuracy and you can pick up the really small details um like you know the the on maverick if you look right. at the pictures on the zero car it's got that little grill on the top of it and so yep. you can actually those little those little grill slats are picked up in the resolution of the printer so i'll use the plastic or the fdm printers to do like just quick prototyping because it doesn't require all the cleanup afterwards and then when i go to actually produce final parts i use the uh, resin printers Okay, I see. I got you. Yeah, and the, the resin printers, like for our listeners, you know, you talk about the uh, epoxy and being UV cured. That's very similar to um, dental epoxy. You know, if you get getting like a filling, especially a filling, sometimes crowns as well, uh, they use UV to cure those. So it's very similar technology. Yep. Yeah, yeah. In fact, they they sell dental resin for these printers. You can you can buy the dental resin if you want to. So it's yep, basically surprised. the same technology, just cheaper machines. So. Right, right. Very cool. Very cool. Okay, so first of all, before we get more into the Maverick stuff and the coaster stuff, you, you mentioned your senior project. Was your senior project using any of your 3D printers or just something else, your design project? Uh, yeah, I used the printers to print the final prototype of the project. Um, so they, they were used, well, and to, so I, I'll give you a very brief description. We yeah. were, uh, my buddy, who ended up being one of my group mates has a friend who owns a golf company mm -hmm. um, and they were wanting to create a smart putter. So a putter that tracked the motion of the putter head in 3d space. Right. Um, so they tasked us with basically putting all the electronics and the creating like a kinematic model based on the sensors that we put in there to track the position of it so that the information could be relayed to a phone and further down the road and goal would be virtual reality apps so that people could golf or putt in their house without mm. having to go to a golf course to right. take the location or resource availability out of the question of training for golf. Right. Um, and so we, they have a putter that they sell and they wanted us to use their design. So they gave us the CAD files for the putter and I used the printing to test fit the you know printed circuit boards that we had made to go in there as we hollowed material out to make sure that our tolerances were right and that everything would fit um ideally we would have finished by machining you know an actual prototype but due to funding and time we just stuck with the 3d printed model so yeah the printers were used quite a lot for that project 
to verify okay, designs and iterations. And I'm assuming the electronic side, one of the main things you use was accelerometers. Yeah, we used the uh, MPU 6050, so six degree of freedom, three axis accelerometer and three axis uh, gyro. Yeah, I've used accelerometers in my career for some very interesting uh, uh, applications, one of which was to, uh, was shipping sensitive equipment um, demo and uh, like alpha prototypes of the technology that my company was developing. And I was going all around the world with that equipment, setting it up and demoing it for potential customers and at trade shows, really cool stuff. But we yeah. were having failures. And so one of the things we wanted to monitor is uh, if the shipping, if there was any stresses during shipment, and then we potentially could even to recapture uh, costs if there was repairs involved and we could go after the shipping company and, you know, for proof and whatnot. So we were always just tracking that. We used accelerometers that I sourced and the accelerometers are really mm -hmm. cool tech, but yeah, anyway, really cool. yeah, yeah. So was your, your, your final design project, was it that putter? Uh, yeah. So the, basically it was the all encompassing, I mean, they gave us a base putter and we returned the smart putter. That was the, oh, okay. that was the the end goal that we were trying to hit very cool okay um, and now have any of your design projects in school involve coasters no i i really got back into being like an outspoken enthusiast in the last couple of years oh, i've always loved coasters i've always tracked what i've ridden i've always ventured out to different parks but um it wasn't until a couple of years ago that i really started to get back into it so i kind of hit the the timing a little late there to it, it, like it never occurred to me to think oh let's do a roller coaster related project i wish i had it would have made the projects a lot more fun got um it. but yeah I, I came in a little late on that one got it okay that makes sense so going back to like the maverick model and the, and the 3d printers that you have and using it for you know fury and maverick so the kits that you have been working on and making that you're selling to people like myself for maverick can those be made with just one of your printers is the resin printers? Um, yes, they can. I don't. I don't make them. Uh, like the base that the printer, or not the printer, the base that the model snaps onto is uh, plastic, just because it it's more inherently designed for printing that style apart. Um, I see. Okay. But it could be done if you had a resin printer. You could absolutely print the base and every other part. The only thing that isn't three D printed on the model is, are the magnets that hold it together. Um, the brass ball joints, that are the couplings between the train, and then the metal rod that's used to pin the wheel assemblies to the, the pivots on the train. Oh, that's it. Everything else is 3D printed. What about the color? Is that is that painted manually or is that as part of the 3D printing as well, like the track, the, the trains? Yeah, so you can do it with... Uh, you can dye resin. That is the thing you can do. And I will be looking into that after I finish this model up. Uh, currently, I paint everything. Uh, and oh, the wow. main decision behind that was, uh, you know, when you print these parts, you have support material that helps support overhangs or parts that aren't uh, attached to the build plate. Right. Um, and so when you take those off, they leave what we call scarring, little like divots and stuff in the, yeah. the surface. And you have to sand those out to get them to look right. And when you sand, you scratch the base color. Oh, so nice. if it were printed, like like if the track were printed in red and I sanded it, you would you would see red in all the other track. And then wherever I sanded, it would kind of be scratchy. And that's not to say I can't polish it out. And I'm going to try that in future tests going forward. But due to that, I just said, let's just paint them. I'll print them in gray. Um, that and I'll paint everything. So that makes sense. And then do you, you spray paint, I'm assuming, or uh, airbrushed? 
or airbrush. Oh, airbrush. Okay, similar, similar. Okay, got it. Got yeah, it. yeah. It gives you a little oh. bit more control than spray cans. Got it. Okay, interesting. So, uh, I guess the the next step. And I don't know if you would ever go to this, um, but the I remember you were telling me about another person on Instagram, and I started following him um, that actually is three D printing working models of coasters. Yeah, there's a there's a whole community. Um, I'm actually in a, a Discord server uh, with, I think there's, I think at this point we have three, 400 members that are all working on coaster projects, whether it be working models, static models, but they're all 3D printed. Um, and a lot of them go with the working models. Um, and I think where you were getting at with this was, uh, I, I do intend to at some point design one. Oh, um, really? Just it's the space constraints at the moment are my issue. And uh, I don't know if I'd be able to sell a working kit like that just due to the sheer amount of parts that would go into it. But right. I mean, it could be one of those things that I design and then make a one-off type of deal. Um, so, yeah. 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 So I, I know, again, you can tell I'm, I'm being an engineer and things I've talked to you about on Instagram and here now in the interview, you know, I'm fascinated by this 3D printing stuff, just 3D printers in general. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I'm not much of a designer myself. I'm not really, I, I, I'm not really into design, like on the, on the optic side, which is my background. I work for a design company that did design software and I, I technically could design optics, but it doesn't interest me. It's more like the building part and just being able to create, you know, something that something else's, someone else's design, like taking a design, a CAD file and putting it into a 3D printer and being able to create things, be able to fix things, you know, using 3D printed parts. That's the kind of stuff that fascinates me. Um, but uh, I, while I want to get a 3D printer and I might eventually get one, my issue, it's not so much a cost issue, it's a time issue because I'm already so busy with everything I've already got going on. And I'll illustrate that. Again, some people are going to probably hang me in effigy for this and not understand. Um, I, I recently moved and one of the boxes that I moved and it's still all boxed up is, are you familiar with the Coaster Dynamics there? I think they call it their Dragon model. Yep, I had one back in the day. So I never had one back in the day, but they reprinted them last year. They did another run, like mm -hmm. a limited run. And I bought one and it's again, sitting in the box, ready to be built. I just don't have the time. I will be building it. I mean, that will happen, but it, that's right. the illustrate. Like I've had it for, I don't know, six months and I haven't built it yet. Again, that's where I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to cheat. But um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, that's kind of all, you know, where they did all the 3D printing or whatever techniques they used, if the, you know, injection molding or whatever, however they did it, cause they did a decent run. So probably wasn't 3D printed, but for volume, but, um, but yeah, I'm excited to build that. But uh, have you been to SeaWorld? When's the last time you were at SeaWorld Orlando? Oh, it, years. Uh, I haven't been okay. since I've been riding coasters. So, okay. Well, maybe you know when you're here, I'll, you know I'll be with you or, or whatnot. And I can show you where this is. But there is a new coffee. Uh, you might have heard about this. There's a new coffee shop basically towards the front of the park, and it's like Starbucks coffee and all that. And it's nice. And they have two working models. They're not to scale or they're not the right layout, but they're the right colors more or less. And, and you know they're inspired by. Uh, crack in and by um, uh, uh, makeup. Okay. And um, right now, at least as of last time I was at SeaWorld a couple weeks ago, a week ago, crack in, the crack in one was working, but the makeup one wasn't. Uh, but, you know, has tr a train on it and they look more or less like the trains uh, on the actual coasters there. 
and you know it goes up the lift with a motor and it goes to the track of course it goes much faster than you know it would in reality that's how those models work um right. and that's really cool it's fun to watch and i'm trying to figure out who made that i'm guessing that SeaWorld contracted with coaster dynamics but maybe it was someone else uh but you'll you'll love it because it, it i mean it's very well designed yeah and, i think i've seen pictures of that uh yeah, yeah i posted throughout things. social media yeah i'm sure people. actually i I'm sure it was your account, um, but and I okay, the yeah. of it. I think it's Coaster Dynamics that made it. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm curious to, because I'm sure, especially knowing you, you'll be able to like you know once you're in the shop there in the coffee shop, you'll be able to look at it and like within five seconds know if it's you know 3D printed or not, and and then you know who probably made it. And so I'm just curious. I mean, it's not, I would love to like buy the Mako one. You know, I, I only can imagine how much because these are they're pretty big. You yeah. know. And I can only imagine, you know, $1,000, $2,000, what it would cost. But, um, you know, it's so cool. But your friend, anyway, that is working on his um, working model, you know, on Instagram, he posts about it. I'm following him, like literally and figuratively, because you know, I'm very curious to see what he comes up with and potentially be interested in buying something, if he even if he decides to sell it. But what was cool is the one he's working on now, it's just a generic one. But just my initial looking at it because of the background, it looked like the rock work from Velocicoaster and the track is like that sort of triangular intimate track with the, you know, the back, the, um, um, uh, the, the uh, spine, if you will, uh, looks mm -hmm. similar to the track. I was like, is he working on Velocicoaster? Then I realized it's generic. It just kind of, in my eye, my, the visuals threw me, but yeah, anyway, it's really right. cool what he's doing where he's 3D printing and actually building a real working model, but. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's yeah. really cool. Yeah, it's cool that you eventually make it into that. That's really awesome. I, I'm really curious to see what you come up with. But in any case, so what is involved? And, you know, what I'm curious to know, because I'm not trying to find out, like, you know, what your costs are versus what you're charging me. I don't, that's not what I'm getting at. But I'm curious about the whole project from the start, like how much time and how much you spent to develop to get at the point where you could, you know, all the trial and tribulation and, the, and so forth, the prototyping you did. Like how much was involved, say, with the Maverick project? Yeah, so Maverick started back in, what was that, the first week of January. Um, so I would say the design phase, which involves finding a bunch of reference photos. Um, it's all done from reference photos, at least my method, because you know none of these manufacturers publish dimensions on their rides. Oh, of course. Um, yeah. So you kind of have to reverse engineer it. So I use a uh, Fusion 360 as my CAD software and I'll bring these reference photos in and scale them to the scale that I want to go to. So for Maverick, I selected 150th because it's a good desktop size, little, sure. doesn't take up too much space, allows you to have more on your desk. Um, and, and then I'll scale the photos to that size and just, just start with, uh, basically I start with the track. Uh, you start right. with the track because once you do that, that dictates all of the geometry for the rest of the train. You're, you're, you know, you're, your track gauge, your wheel diameters, all of that's dictated by the track. So you start with that um, and then you start with the wheel assemblies and you just work your way up the car, uh, adding more and more details until you have it to a point that you like. So right. I would say the CAD process for Maverick probably took a month on and off, not consistently working. I would say total to make it, I would probably say 15 to 20 hours CAD time. Um, um, but a lot of the time, you know, it's basically I'll, I'll make a change and then I'll go print it 
and you know, does it look right? Does it do what I think it's going to do if it's a functional part? And then I'll go make the change again so that I don't get too far along the design process before realizing, you know, something wasn't right. So that kind right. of drives it out. Um, you go through a lot of iterations, a lot of prints. And then once you get the look of the train to a point where you're happy, then it comes down to, you know, how do you, I had to find the best way to print it that would leave the least amount of scarring, like we were talking about before of the support material. Right. So how do you print it that creates the least amount of work for you on the back end, but also makes it look the best. Um, and so like, for instance, the, the track piece for the Maverick model with the, the lattice structure that Intamin uses is a very complicated one to print because those little diagonal pieces yeah. are, if I remember correctly, they're a millimeter in diameter on this model. Oh, and the scale down to 150. Right, right, right. Right. And so when you pull the supports off, they kept breaking. So I'm pretty sure I printed upwards of like 30 to 40 track pieces before I finally got the support Oof. settings right to where I could reliably pull the support off without breaking the track. Um, so a lot of time goes into designing and prepping the print for the actual production of it. But then throw in the fact that I decided about halfway through that I wanted to sell these. Uh, since some people, had, you were one of them, reached out and expressed interest in it. And I was like, you know, I don't mind selling these. I'll, I'll produce a few. And then I kind of had to go back and revisit that whole process again to get it to a point where I felt comfortable sending it to someone that they could put it together without damaging something. Right. Um, so there's that whole like design as product design aspect of it. So previously, the you know, I, I don't know if I explained that to you, but the seats clip onto the seat posts with magnets. Yeah. Um, it didn't do that. It previously the seats I would have glued them on for right. my model, right? I don't want to take the fun of the assembly out of the end user, but I also don't want people to have to glue because glue is messy and it doesn't always work the same. And you know, there's a lot of variables there. So then I was like, well, I'll just use magnets. So I started designing for magnets, and then I had to do a bunch of design testing to make sure that like my printing tolerances would fit the magnets and right. all of that. So I added some time onto it, um, but I would say from start to finish with all of those taken into account, not including the case that I later designed, because I don't consider right. that part of the model per se. Um, I would say three months, and I was at it quite a lot. Um, I'm on online, most of my classes are online, so I spend quite a bit of time not commuting, and in that time I'm designing. So I'd oh, say cool. about three months from start to to finish where I could have printed out a kit. Like if you walked up to me, I could have printed it and given it to you if I didn't have to ship it. Um, right. So they, right. They take some time. Um, so you said you originally started on this, you said January of last year? No, 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 this year, this year. Oh, Jan oh so literally like three months, even, you know, part-time doing it three months. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. yeah. Okay. it doesn't take too much time. Uh, like you don't have to sit down and do big bulks of time. You just have to be able to put in a few minutes here and there. Oh, uh, interesting. You know, like I, you know, I'd come in at one night and just, you know, add the, the details to the wheel assembly, right? Add the little, the bolt right. heads that, go in that print with it and the uh, the dampeners that are in the wheel assembly and i'd add that detail in and then that would be it for the night and i'd go make another change and then like one weekend i tackled uh the seat and the harness design because they're a little bit more complicated you just do it step by step and build up the train right um, now in terms of like the raw materials cost like the resin or you know whatever the you know the the spools for the other type of printer you mentioned um in terms of development like were you spending like what hundreds of dollars or like what, what kind of scale are we talking about here um, so just for the materials alone, um, I'm trying to think, cause I've used quite a lot. I'd say probably, I've used probably four bottles of resin 
um, which are their, their leaders, one liter bottles. Oh, wow. um, and I use um, two different types of resin. I use a, I call it like a prototyping resin. It's really brittle. Um, so I would never ship kits with this resin with parts right. printed in it, but it's cheap. So if those are $25 a liter. Oh, and then okay. I use an engineering grade one, which is closer to like ABS plastic, which is in oh, everything yeah. nowadays. Right. Um, and that's what these kits will come in. And those oh, are about $60 a liter. Okay. Um, so I would say in resin, 150 to 200, depending on how much prototyping I have to do. Um, the plastic filament, the FDM filament, I probably used a few spools. So that's like 50 to 100. So I'd say somewhere in the 250 to $400 range for oh. all of the parts to make it. Um, okay. the, the biggest development with cost, all the trial and error. That's all the trial and error that you did. Yeah. Cause I, I started, I used to print whole parts to test things. And then I realized you don't have to, you really don't have to waste all the material. Like if I'm just testing the coupling between the trains, I don't need to print the whole car. So I would slice right. the car from the front of the car and print like the first 10 millimeters of it. And then the, the back 10 millimeters of the car in front of it. And then I could test the mechanism without wasting so much material. Right. Um, and, and then once I were ha was happy with that, I'd go back and then do one final prototype print of the whole car, make sure it still worked. And then I was happy and I'd move on. Okay. That, that makes so a lot it, of sense. It doesn't use as much. Right. It sort of comes back to like we talked about in the beginning of the interview about compartmentalizing and problem solving, just focusing on what you're changing and not necessarily having to repeat the whole thing all at once. So yeah, right. Makes a lot right. of sense. Okay, so that's been a lot, even less than I thought. Okay, that's really cool. Now you talked about for the for designing it, you were taking, I think you call them reference photos. What kind of photos did you call them again? Yeah, just reference photos. So, okay, so they're just basically people, just, yeah, like photos yep, people the, took. Yeah, go to Google, type in Mavericks at your point and just find any and all pictures that you think can help design what you're looking for. So I really look for head on square pictures. So like if it's a right. picture of the train coming straight at you, cause then you're not going to have that uh, angled perception of distance. Right. Uh, that you, Like if you just measure straight across a computer screen on an angled shot, that line's not going to be an accurate scale. Right. Um, so square on pictures are good. And then I like to get a bunch of pictures of like the trains inverted and the backsides of them. So you can see all angles to, for the oh, visual yeah. side of things. Um, yeah, so it's just like I have a folder for each train that I've done and future projects where I've, if I see a photo, like on Instagram, I saw a photo for one of my future projects the other day and was like, I need to save that. So I screenshotted it and I've moved it over to my computer so that I have it because it has, you know, it might just be one element. It might just be like the seat itself, but it's a good view that allows me to get dimensions or design aspects off of it. I see. Now, is part of what you're going to, like, are you into photography at all or like to support you know, what you just described where you would take your own photos, like with a DSLR with a really good camera. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting into that. I recently just acquired a DSLR. It's actually what I used to take my Instagram photos. So I do have oh. plans to start using that more. Um, and I want to take it to parks. I'm hesitant to take it to parks because I know they can be a little uh, stringent about what you're allowed to bring in. But yeah, I, I definitely want to start getting my own reference photos. It's just a little hard because I'm not always going to be able to make it up to, you know, say Cedar Point or uh, you know, down to Orlando to do Velocicoaster or whenever I choose to do that. So while it would be nice to take these reference photos, I more rely on Google just because of the rental, the, the availability of those pictures. Right. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, I'm into photography, but what you just described is why I've not bought, uh, you know, mirrorless camera, DSLR. I mean, I know there's some amazing ones and many of my friends, especially local, but even elsewhere, they're really into it. 
and you know they carry on these big cameras but then a lot of the parks they don't have you know good locker systems or they're paying you have you know cost money and it's just a hassle and you know universal is one of the free few parks that offers a free locker system for all rides that need lockers and it's amazing uh, but even then their lockers are small so some dslrs won't fit in them so it's like i'd rather just have my iphone i always have the latest one each year i get an upgrade every year and that's good enough for me and you know, they say the best cameras are the one you always have with you you know so right yeah 100 yeah. and i and i do take a lot of phone pictures uh for reference pictures again i started yeah. this whole 3d printing thing fairly recently with the whole printing coasters so i haven't really had a chance to go out and start taking pictures but yeah it's part of my 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 park to-do list whenever i'm at a park is any rides that i foresee taking and turning into a model i'll i'll be taking a bunch of pictures of them so nice nice and the software you talked about the fusion software so is that automatic is it like you you put the photo in and it is able to come up with a design or you are just designing manually by and by looking at that photo yeah so it can't take yeah so the the design's all done manually the 3d part okay, the way the it. pictures are used with the software is i'll bring them in you can import it as like a canvas so it's like a background i see and then you can draw a line from two points on the picture and then tell the software how far is that line in real life got it and it'll tell and then at that point any dimensions you take from the picture are now scaled to real life and you can use those to design your work so uh yeah they're only used for dimensions for me and then of course i'm just looking at the aesthetics pictures i don't import those i just look at them to make design choices um right yeah but really that's it's just dimensioning right makes sense makes sense and then your your scale of 150th scale makes sense again cars being one of my other hobbies i don't do, do a lot of like die cast cars although i have certainly had them before and those are usually a little bit larger scale but again a car a you know literally car that we drive you know that's like one car of a train and it's not often as big as the trains usually are bigger with the wheels and then you have to add the track on so it's a much larger structure overall what you're doing with a track and then the whole train on it so it makes sense it would have to be a smaller scale so right on the yeah and, and even at 150th uh my original intent with maverick was to have it mid dive down the first drop so i was going to oh. have the the crest and then it would end at the bottom kind of like slanted at an angle and it would right. the train would be perched inverted going down the hill oh nice and when i started to do the cad for it at 150th scale that entire drop section would have been two and a half feet tall right right and i was like this is just it's not feasible even at 150th so yeah uh, yeah no, i, I mean it's, it. it's a good yeah. in between i think it's a good scale for the actual trains themselves but it kind of gets hard to stage them on a, on a track section right um, without taking up a lot of space but yeah it's a kind of it's kind of a compromise on happy medium and all that makes sense yeah right so if you can comment you know now that you're finishing your maverick product i mean the project's done now you can just duplicate it and sell it to people um but let me ask you this first, first. so let's say you know you've printed a number of these like for people like myself that have asked you to to sell them if you know you know how this works you know free advertising you know I, I, you know i put it together and have it set up in my home and i've got all kinds of coaster friends of course and they come over and they see it they want to buy it you know you're going to perhaps get more interest so can you easily make more or is it like a challenge because you know you, you're not actually making them all the time like how, how how much how challenging is that yeah they they take quite a bit of effort to make uh that's why i'm only making I've said it as several different places throughout Instagram, but I'm only making a few of these. I haven't decided on the number. I'm trying to gauge popularity among people to figure out. But 
uh, with it not being my full time, you know, my my full center of attention, uh, and the fact that everything's hand painted, they take quite a lot of time. The printing doesn't take long. I can right. print about if I'm if you look at it from like an eight hour day. Right. I start at nine and end at you know at five and have my printers running. You know, when the print's done, I pull it off and start another one. I think I can print somewhere around ten to twelve full sets. Oh, in and so that's fast. That's not a problem. In fact, your kit, that first batch of three that I, I just finished up, um, those were printed the day that I announced that I would be selling them. They were done. It's the painting that takes so long. Uh, I see. Um, because you have to let it dry. If you go too early, you pull the previous layer off, and you know you don't you don't want to rush the aesthetic details. So you, it's you gotta you know go through it with a fine tooth comb and make sure that everything looks right. Um, so that's the the longest aspect of the project. So if people wanted to buy them unpainted, I could produce them faster if they wanted to paint them themselves. Right. Um, and then going forward, you know, I mentioned not the painting them, but using the dyed resin, that would speed things up a lot because then I would only have to paint as, you know, like um, accents. So I would paint the, or print the trains for Maverick and Silver, but just paint the red on the side. Right. That would speed it up a lot. So I'm looking at that in the future. I'm also looking at, I've got a couple CNC machines. I'm looking at CNC, uh, CNCing some uh, injection molds and getting a oh. desktop injection molding machine oh, wow. um, to, to try doing that. Because not only would it be quicker, but it's it's going to be a little bit stronger than the resin. I mean, resin just has an inherent brittle-like factor to right. it. So right. there's that aspect. But So yeah, there, it's going to be a limited edition for most kits. I'd say for now, for the foreseeable future, unless I can find some easier, quicker methods to produce them. Right. So with the with the dyed resin, it's one color at a time that you would be able to put into the printer to print from, right? Yeah. It, unfortunately, it's you can't do uh, what they call multi-material uh, printing. So FDM, you can. It's just swapping out the plastic. So you can do that. Uh, with resin, you can't because it's liquid in a, it, they, they call it a vat, basically a tank. I've racked my brain trying to come up with a way to design a multi, uh, multi-material resin printer, but I haven't come up with much gold on that one yet. Um, so if that came out, so it would be huge. Okay, so basically where 3D printing technology is at this point, like state of the art, is it's analogous to like for a, a two-dimensional like paper-based printer, like an inkjet or a laser jet. It's they're basically strictly monochrome. They've not gotten to the point of being multicolor like modern 2D printers yeah. are. For resin, yes. For the plastic or the FDM printing, they make uh, you because you can easily swap out what plastic's being melted. You just retract it out of the extruder. Um, okay. So you can just so they have devices that you can buy for your printers that will. Uh, you can put six different colors or as many colors oh. as you want, and then it will feed in the right color at the time that it's needed. Oh, um, well, that's so those are an option. Um, but unfortunately, with that technology, with the plastic, I can't get the resolution that I'm getting on these. So I, I have to go resin to get this scale. Got it. And yeah, Got for, for resin, yes, I would say it's a it's akin to monochromatic printing, uh, basically, or, or better yet, printing at one time. So your sheet of paper can only be printed once. Once it's been printed, you have to put in a new sheet and that sheet, you can pick one color, but that's it. That's all you can put in there. Right, that's the analog, right, yeah. So, cause I, I thought I've seen 3D printed, like, you know, videos of 3D printers, you know, putting something together like a time-lapse 
where it was multiple colors. So I guess it was it was not resin, right? Okay. No. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, it's just fascinating to me, you know, just what these things can do. Uh, again, the only thing that stopped me from getting a printer is just time, you know, and so maybe eventually I'll have more time and I can do it. So speaking of having time for you, so now that you're done with the Maverick project, as far as, you know, you've done designing it and you're, you're basically getting all the kits done, and this is going to be probably your only run. Um, can you comment what your next coaster 3D printing project is going to be? Are you still figuring that out or? So at the moment, I'm leaning towards uh, a static model of Topsail Dragster cresting the top hat. Oh, okay. Now, would it be the entire top hat or just the top of it? Like, would you be doing all that? Yeah, so vertical to vertical um, with the support structure. Yeah, so the, the whole top hat, basically from where it starts to crest not starts to crest, but like where it goes from vertical on the, uh, up, the upward side and then it turns vertical again before the 270 spiral. So basically like a rainbow. Um, oh, okay, so it's have, just the curved um, section at the top, the crest, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, okay, gotcha. That's and then, cool. I, yeah, and I plan to put the uh, the support structure back there too, the catwalk, um, and I'd like to include the little, the red beacon at the top flashing, subtle little detail, but I feel like it would add a lot, so. <laughs> so is it is what is guiding you like have you received a lot of interest from people where they would like to buy something you put together is that kind of what's guiding you or is it just your personal interest or uh as of now it's personal interest so in my mind i kind of already had top throw after maverick sure um, and after top throw i had actually talked about doing wicked twister just because it's a a cool inverted train which would yeah. also be volcano just painted differently so right um, exactly but due to some feedback from uh you know peers on the community and feedback from you uh i'm probably gonna hold off on wicked twister i really after talking to you i really want to do velocicoaster and put the light kit in it i think that would be awesome so um, so speaking of the lighting kit so like you talked about the flashing light because of how tall Couple dragster is required. I mean, anything over 200 feet, it has to have a flashing light. Um, or you're right. talking about, of course, the lights on the trains of Velocicoaster. These would, how would that work though? Would it be like a little battery with wires? So I'm looking at two methods. Um, the wires I would design routed somehow through the track. Um, right. I've contemplated doing like what model railroading does, where they polarize the rails and then the right. on the, the, the trains themselves. Um, so that's, I got to work through that depending on like e each coaster is going to be uniquely different for that. But the current plan is either to do like a plug-in setup where like you plug it into a wall outlet, just a little barrel jack on the back that sits on your desk. Um, but I really want to go wire free. So I'm toying with, I bought some parts the other day to mess around, start messing around with the electronic theory on it. Um, but some really low uh, power LEDs that don't draw a lot of current and a solar cell with a little watch battery, kind of like what a calculator uses. And so uh, I don't think most people know, or I guess I should assume most people do know it, but the calculators with solar panels, they don't operate only on the solar panel. They have a little battery in there and the solar right, panel recharges the battery. Right. So I would like to do that so that people could just set it up wherever they want. They don't have to be near an outlet. They don't have to take up a plug. And so it would have like a solar panel on the base or a few of them, depending on the, the needs, and then a little watch battery with the charging circuit inside. So, you know, you would turn it on 
and it would light up and then, you know, it might die. You might leave it on too long and it might die, but you just turn it off. And then over time, the solar panel will charge the battery back up and, or have a plug on the back that you could plug in to charge it real quick. Um, that's kind of what I'm toying with right now. Wow. Um, that's, that's pretty I, cool. I'd like to go wireless. Yeah, no wireless, I think would be the best way to go ideally. And yeah. And, and with those, um, something that a lot of people may not realize with those calculators, because those, a lot of those aren't around anymore. People don't use things like that. They use their phone or computer is, you know, those panels, those, and any solar panels in general, they don't need necessarily sunlight. It can be artificial light as well. will help charge. So it can be inside and charge. Right. Yeah. You don't have to like stick yep. your bottle outside for a day to charge or something. Yeah. Now for right. VelociCoaster, I mean, I'm obviously, I know you've not been on it, but you, right. you know, yeah, if you've got the lights on on the um, on the cars, like kind of lower portion of the cars, like you know, where people's legs are, but you've also got the lights on either side of each pa- of each person, not just you know each car. So you've got like kind of four four sets in each car that are like you know above shoulder level. Mm-hmm. So would you be kind of going to that little detail, where you might be doing both of those kind of lights? Yeah, I've got this thing with myself where I'm gonna if I'm gonna do something, I'm gonna I'm going to go all the way with it. So if, if I'm going to do the lights on VelociCoaster, it, like I, it feels disingenuous to myself not to do all of the lights on VelociCoaster. Um, yeah. Of course, that's going to make it more complicated. So that probably wouldn't be a model I would sell many of. I might do a one-off if somebody you know, specifically requests it. Or like if you specifically requested one, I'd make you one just from the sheer time that it would take to put the lights in the right spot. And right. yeah, I'd, I'd have to do all of the lights. I, I couldn't. I feel like I'd be selling myself short if I only did have right. or selling the ride short. So, yeah, no kidding. Especially when you see it in person, you know, especially at night. Uh, and when the lights worked, by the way, Instrument had a third party company uh, do the lighting because Instrument, well, Universal did, I should say, because Instrument refused to take that on. You know, when Instrument refuses to take a project on, that's that points to it being very challenging. Yeah. So the lights are, are, are something that don't always work on the, on, the, on the ride. But So it's almost like you might do two versions of Velocicoaster, one without the lights and one with? Uh, possibly. Uh, it, it really depends. You know, as, as I start to design it, things come out about it that dictate whether or not it's a feasible object to, to produce multiples of or not. Maverick's a fairly easy one due to the short length of the train. So there's minimal right. parts. Right. You know, if Maverick had eight cars like a BNM, I mean, you'd be looking at 32 seats instead of 12, and right. it would just be so much more. Um, yeah, yeah, Velocicoaster so, is kind of in the middle a little bit. It's 20. Right. Right. So yes. that's that's kind of why I'm leaning towards it being like a, you know, maybe I produce one or two extras versus the one that I make myself, or on top of the one that I make myself, and that's kind of it. Yeah. But we'll see. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely looking forward to following, you know, your progress is once you once you get to start doing that, whenever that is, my guess is, you'll come here to Florida ride VelociCoaster and that'll kind of catapult that project forward as far as how soon you started. I just have a feeling that's, that's kind of what I'm thinking too. It's I, I put top Thrill dragster kind of on I've hit the brakes on it, moving really slow with it because I have a feeling that's going to happen too. And yeah. I don't want to get super invested into another project but really want to do VelociCoaster. So I got to wait like a month and then I'll be able to decide, but we'll see. Yeah. we'll see. I'm excited to just watch it, you know, just as an engineer and someone just, just to watch it unfold on your Instagram, but the things you put the police put up on Instagram and, and then, you know, hopefully to be able to get a kit myself and that that's really awesome. Um, that's so cool. So, you know, along these lines where, you know, you know, selling some of these kits and so forth, do you ever see this where, Maybe it wouldn't be your full-time job or a source of income, but where you might even get to the point of having like an online storefront, um, 
you know, maybe like a, like an, uh, like a Redbubble Etsy version of a coaster dynamics where you like offer just a limited, you know, certain few different coaster designs and just sell them and make them in lots. I would love to do that. Um, I think the ideal model for that currently how it is, is so I, I will be selling these on Etsy. Uh, oh, you will be. Store. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's just easier. I, I'm okay selling to people without a middleman like that, but I feel like the, the, you know, the fees that, you know, are incurred by selling things on there is worth the, the safety that the buyer feels like I right. clearly you and I have talked and I don't think you're worried that you're actually going to get something for your money for me, but there oh, are absolutely. others who don't know me and yeah. they only know me as a guy who's posted seven pictures on Instagram. And so I want the buyer to feel like, okay, their money's going to be held until I ship something to them. And so that's, that's why I've gone that route. Um, as of now, I, my plan is to produce, I've only made three kits. Um, I'm going to make them in batches of three just because it's easier to manage that way. And each time I finish a batch of three, I will list three more in stock on my Etsy store. I um, see. And then that will continue until I've, I've decided that I'm whatever number I'm going to make is what, what it, it finishes as. If I can get to a point with dyed resin, like we were discussing, or if I'm able to make injection molds, that really speed up this process. I would love to get to a point where I have, you know, five or six designs that is a, you know, you, you pay and I make it, you know, an on-demand order versus I have stock. Um, right. And right. so, yeah, I, it, I don't think it would ever become a full-time job, but I absolutely would love to get to a point where people can go on to a store that's always up, that always has stock available because when they order it, I make it. Right. Um, it's just at this point with the, the processes that I'm working with, it's not suited to that. So it's kind of a more of a batch system that I'm working with. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It's very methodical, which is, I would expect no less out of you knowing how your mind works and learning a lot about that here today. And, and that, you know, that's good. You're very well grounded in that way, logic and everything else. Uh, you know, and I think it's it's awesome because, you know, I've, I've encountered a couple of people on Instagram before meeting you uh, where they do, they post these pictures, these really cool train designs, track designs, or both like you've been doing. And I reach out to them and say, hey, you know, you're going to sell these? I said, no, no, I'm not going to sell it. And I get it because it's, it's, it's daunting. And I think it's awesome. You're being methodical, but you're the one of really the only one I've encountered so far that, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make a few and sell them. And where you're doing methodically, but you're venturing there. And I, you know, it sounds like you've got a good plan where you're not getting it too caught up with yourself. But I think, you know, this could become a big thing because, you know, a lot of people, most people don't have 3D printers. They don't have the ability to create this themselves. And so there's a market for this. And, you know, I see it firsthand myself, what with Thuzies and, you know, there are thousands of us here in the US. There's not tens of thousands, probably, or not certainly hundreds of thousands, but there's at least enough of an audience. And you know how Thuzies are. They love having memorabilia and, 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 mm -hmm. and souvenirs and whatnot and be able to show off their favorite coasters. And yeah, posters and, and things they can buy at the parks. You know, it's one thing, you know, your coaster dynamic stuff, but what you do, I mean, that is so unique. And think about how many people buy coaster dynamics cutouts and just that's just pieces of wood that aren't even painted. And, and they're just, they don't even resemble, quite frankly, I love coaster dynamics, but a lot of their train designs or cutout designs, you know, they don't really well represent the trains because of how they are put together. You know, mm -hmm. how they have to kind of, how they have to kind of slide into each other and things like that. And, you know, and their nano coasters, they're so small, you know, you don't get the level of detail. So they don't have a product 
that represents what you're doing. Right. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. Um, and yeah. and that's that's you know going back to quite a while ago in this conversation, you know, you asked how I got started in this, and that yeah. was it. I mean, I left I left Carowinds, and I was like, I want one of those models. Well, they don't make them anymore, and you can't buy. No one makes uh, what what I'm calling realistic models. I, right. I mean, this might sound arrogant, but I coined my Maverick model as a hyper realistic model. I try to capture as much detail. Oh, as absolutely. I can in it, and um you know it, it, that's just there's nothing there that's why i started doing it I, and i never imagined that somebody would want something that i i made so that's it's definitely been a humbling experience and i've i've enjoyed oh, yeah. interacting with individuals in the community i've i've enjoyed your feedback and uh you know i do plan to do some more some, some more reaching out you know whether it be a, a poll post if people you know recommend what ride they'd like to see or you know hey i'm working on this coaster what element do you think would be the coolest to, to stage the coaster on Oh um, sure. I've, yeah, it's just it's just been so much fun interacting with all the the enthusiasts and the different you know aspects of the community. Yeah. Um, oh, so absolutely. You're, yeah, you're very friendly. It started out. It started out as a selfish desire to have a, a a model of a coaster that I love, and it turned into you know this whole this whole community that I never really even knew existed. I didn't even know there was a three D printing coaster community, but yeah, there's either. a lot of them, and <laughs> and the the Discord server that I'm on has a an Instagram page which I can tell you about at the end if you if you'd like me to oh yeah that'd be great to share yeah yeah um, that's very cool that's a really awesome journey there and yeah it, i think it's awesome i'm so glad that you and i connected and you know be able to get this maverick model and then potentially other things and you know certainly when you get the point if you know it sounds like you are going to want doing a velocicoaster one uh you know i certainly am happy to provide you with input of you know of one like what what part of the layout although it's pretty obvious it should be the mosasaurus role <laughs> but um you know perhaps other other options as well if the mosasaurus role is winds up being challenging and just don't like the idea um there's some other ideas as well but also just as you're working on it you know i'm here in florida and I, i'm kind of boots on the ground and i can take photos for you or you know or you know i i know that the layout very well but you know i'm just looking forward to that journey with you maybe i can help you along the way in, in yeah. making perfect i know you're very much a perfectionist and being a perfectionist with this type of work that is non-trivial i'm sure <laughs> no yeah no you, you definitely it's, it's either right 100 percent or it's 100 percent wrong there's no in between and and i've noticed that a lot with the, the peers that i've gotten to know in this community too it's there's no in between it's either perfect or it's not and yeah yeah that's um, that's yeah that's got to be very challenging absolutely so well thanks for uh, kind of you know it's kind of quite a nice discussion there about the 3d printing stuff and very fascinating I'm sure some of our audience will find it interesting as well um i know that you know number of people that listen to this podcast or guests that have been on the podcast that now listen are, are kind of engineering minded and and appreciate the level of detail so thank you so um, last couple things here. Um, first of all, kind of going back to the beginning of the interview, uh, the the fear journey and whatnot. And you know, if you could share any advice, I mean, what your story already, I think, is great advice. But if there's anything else, kind of your uh, chef's kiss, kind of kind of last, you know, advice here that you'd like to share with our audience about maybe people that are being challenged, you know, facing fear, dealing with with depression or anxiety where the parts could help coasters could help anything you'd like to share any advice yeah um you know just kind of there's a just a big old summary of you know what we've discussed is just don't be afraid to tackle what you want to do head on even if it scares you um whether that be hopping on a coaster or you know like we've discussed a lot big life changes or big big events in your life 
or for you know to take it down to a really basic level me designing you know my first my first 3d printed coaster um you know it's th these things can all be very daunting insurmountable uh, tasks that you have to accomplish and you just got to keep in mind that one you can do it you're capable of it you got to tell yourself that and two you just got to start somewhere you know if it's riding coasters pick a small coaster that you're like you know what i don't think this is gonna freak me out that much and just just start there and you work your way up you know with the, the modeling or if you're trying to design something for, for your engineers design a cad model pick one part of this thing you're trying to make design that and then it all builds from there you just got to tackle it head on uh, you know, in, in, in one step at a time, start small and work your way up. And eventually you'll get to, to the point where you can tackle these things and you'll start to to gain these skills that allow you to take things on more head on in the future. Absolutely. That's great advice. And yeah, that's certainly a good point, too, because I certainly have had this in my life. I know a lot of people do where they get this anxiety because they think about, oh, my gosh, I've got to do all 300 of these things. You know, I've got to do this like crazy long project and it's daunting because they're just they're not focusing on individual pieces of it. They're looking at the whole thing. And yeah, the whole thing is pretty daunting. But if you just focus on one step at a time, one step, you know, one one of the 300 things you have to do at a time, you get that done. You feel accomplished. You get the next stop, next step, next step. And, you know, that's how it is. And so that that's the advice you gave. Them. That's really good advice. So thank you. Yeah. So the last thing, and we've kind of hinted at this, and I think this is really important in your case here, because the second half of the interview, we talked about 3D printing and this, you know, there, I am sure there is no doubt, because I, I see how often it's mentioned in top 10 lists. There are many fans out there uh, that are listening to this podcast that are big fans of Maverick. Maverick is an incredible coaster and, and it, it was a, you know, it changed the industry when it was built and opened in 2007 and so we've been talking all about this hyper realistic model which your model is definitely hyper realistic for everything i've seen of it but we're in a podcast people have not seen it while we're talking so this last thing i'd ask you to do here is to share where people can see what you've done you know see your social media if you have a website youtube um wherever people can see that and perhaps even that um that instagram page for that you know that the community, I would love, I might want to follow that myself. Uh, just share whatever you can in this regard so people can literally see this stuff. Yeah, for sure. So my, I mostly, well, not mostly, I'm, I'm basically on Instagram. That's, that's where I, I am solely. Um, I don't have a website, although I'm working on one to showcase different designs. I'd like, also like to implement, you know, more iterative, like, so people can see the process and get an idea of how these things are made. Um, but Instagrams and, and you'll find updates to that website as I make it on my Instagram. But my Instagram handle, do you want me to say it or can you guys put it in the notes? How do you want to go about that? But why don't you go ahead and say it and we'll also put it in the notes for this episode? Okay, yeah. So my Instagram is 3dp underscore coaster underscore design. Um, and, and, and on there, you can see all of the Maverick updates. I, I started the page right as I was starting Maverick. So you should be able to see it from design conception to uh, you know where it's at right now with the kits. Um, and then I've got a previous couple pictures, I think, of my, my first Fury model that I made. So that's on there if you want to see that as well. Um, the, the, what's, I'm trying to find, make, I'm trying to verify that this name is right. Um, but this group of peers that I'm a part of that also has an, an Instagram page it is called Coaster Printing Central. Um, it's basically just an Instagram page that showcases the work done by the members in it. Um, so there's a lot of working models, there's static models. It's just, it's, it's really cool to see uh, 
um, all of the different things that people come up with. Um, it, there's actually even some work in there from the designer of the uh, coaster cutouts. So the, the individual who designs the wooden coaster cutouts for Coaster Dynamics is a part of the oh, group. Uh, so you can see he back a while ago, a few years ago, made a working Invertigo coaster. And so there's there's footage of that on there uh, that we've showcased. So uh, wow. definitely go check that page out. They're, they post updates, I believe, every Monday. So you'll see a new project, a new project update every week. Um, and they tag the individual's social media accounts so you can follow that project personally if you want to. So if you want to follow more of these people, see more of these working models on your feed, that's a good way to do it. Yeah, I'm definitely going to follow that. You Did I catch that right? Someone created a second gen boomerang, like working with two lift hills and everything. Yeah, it has working harnesses too. They the harnesses lift and lower while they're in the station. And so that second lift hill catches the train and everything and all that. I, I believe so. I haven't seen the video in a while, but I'm pretty sure it does. Oh, wow, it, it's worth checking out. It's it's basically what started the whole community was that model because uh, it got a lot of people who were wanting to do this kind of inspired to follow. And now we've got a bunch of different individuals that are doing it. That's incredible. I'm definitely going to look, look for that specifically and also follow that the coaster uh, printing central page. Yeah. On Instagram. That's awesome. Wow. Well, uh, thank you, Ryan. And again, I appreciate all the time here and I, it's fascinating to talk about the 3D printing stuff and what you have been doing and succeeded in. And I'm excited to re re meet my meet my kit and get my kit, put it together, and also see what you're coming out with the future, especially to the Velocity Coaster and all that if that happens. And um, I'm sure many of our listeners will appreciate seeing this stuff. Some of our listeners may not even know that this this kind of stuff exists and is possible, and it might inspire people to 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 you know uh, to get into involved themselves or you know buy these kits when they're available. So. But yeah, thanks for everything. And thanks for the first part of the interview too. Your your fear journey and how you made through it, how you got through it is is awesome. It's a great lesson. So thanks. I for appreciate your that. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I, I love what you guys are doing here. I think this the effort that you guys are making is, is awesome. And uh, it has huge impacts on not just the, the coaster side of this, com this community, but, you know, just every aspect, every facet of life. And I, I think it's cool that there's someone out there that's addressing these topics and trying to create solutions for everybody. So yeah, keep it up. Thank you. We're just all about being positive and trying to make, uh, make the world a better place and, and help the community too. So, well, thank you again, yeah. Ryan. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to see more of us, we upload every Friday. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, all at Coaster Challenge. Links are in the description below. Thanks for joining us here today.